This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Happy Tuesday to you. Hope you're doing well on your commute uh, or whatever you got going on this morning. It's got to be better than what's going on in Houston and uh, South Texas, East Texas, moving towards Louisiana. In a couple days. This is a big deal. It does not stop. What do you do when you're expecting another, whatever, 10 inches of rain? I thought it was like five feet. Oh, really? Five more feet? I guess. No, not feet. It'll be, they're, they're expecting, like some areas have got 30 inches. They're yeah. going to probably end up getting 50. And then Louisiana's looking for 10 inches of rain on top of. Unbelievable. Uh, anything they've gotten just being in the region, you're getting rain. So. Story after story. Uh, everybody's bringing out their boats now. In fact, how cool. The Cajun Navy is all over it. Louisianans are bringing out their boats to help the flood-ravaged Houston uh, citizens. That was a crazy crazy picture you showed me yesterday, Terry, with somebody standing under the water just to give you a perspective on how deep it is. Oh, and then holding their hand above the water? Yeah, Yeah. the guy's 5'8", and the water's over six foot, so you just see his hand sticking out of the water. Holy cow. Can you imagine just everything that you knew? They have all the before and after shots in Houston. Hey, this is Houston's freeway system before. Here it is after. It's just unbelievable. Oh, yeah. You showed me that one, too. It's also – isn't it amazing? It's actually just so humbling what Mother Nature can do. Just don't tick her off. (laughs) Holy cow, that guy's hand from his elbow up is above the water. Well, our prayers uh, continue to go out uh, to uh, really everybody um, in Texas, uh, South Texas, East Texas, and on the way to Louisiana. It is one of those moments that – will go down, I guess, again in history, right? And you, you see a lot of heroic act, actions uh, being taken today and, and throughout the last few days. In fact, today we will be speaking about heroes and kind of more heroes and politics. I'm predicting there's going to be a shortage of Harveys coming into the world. Harvey the babies. Uh, oh yeah. I don't think people are going to yeah, be naming no. their babies Harvey for yeah, a while. Yeah, Katrina used to be a great name and then people <laughs> quit using it. When was the last time you met a young person whose name was Harvey? Well, I think it was becoming it was in vogue again. I think people were thinking that was a cute name until this weekend. Wrong. Yeah, sorry about that. It's a cute name. It's uh it's up there. There's like three names that are really popular right now. Charlie uh, Harvey and Stas. Wrong. How do you say it? Stas. You're wrong. Stanislav. Stas is rhymes with boss. Stas. Stas. There you go. Stas. Cute kid. Cute kid. Uh, born in a lobby of a hospital. So that's going to be the saying from now on. Whenever he doesn't shut the door. Yeah. What were you born in a lobby? <laughs> You never could make it here on time. <laughs> That's what will happen every Or maybe time. that'll be his go-to excuse from now on. Oh, absolutely. Oh, forgive me. I was born in the lobby. You don't know what I've been through. <laughs> uh, we got a great show. So much to uh, talk about. Uh, we'll be getting into heroes and, and politics and really how we see heroes. And does it matter? Does it matter if we agree on what a hero is? Well, our, our guests uh, this morning have been doing a lot of research on it and – 
Um, they're coming up with some information that is a little startling. I mean, you want to be able to revere certain people for certain works. And even in America, we're finding out we don't agree really on what is a hero. For example, is John McCain a hero? I'd say absolutely. The man gave his life for years in a concentration camp, except now— Some, some say no because he got captured. Yeah. I thought maybe you meant more <laughs> recent uh, events that happened where he He has a brain stood tumor. Up. No, no, oh, no. Uh, he stood he took up. on the bill, yeah, yeah. the health care bill. Well, yeah. but see, but again, that's kind of where we then get so political about his career that we can't see the hero, the, the hero that he is. Hmm. So we'll talk about that. Pretty interesting uh, discussion coming up with the authors of the book, Where Have All of the Heroes Gone? The Changing Nature of American Valor. Pretty interesting stuff there. Plus, again, we are seeing from Houston a lot of heroes, heroes and heroic acts being uh, undertaken. And, and what about the livestock? What about what about the sewage? What about the chemical plants that are there? I mean, it's a major chemical industry. It's a major refinery area. What about gas prices? And what about President Trump heading there today? Well, well, what? Close to there. Yeah. But Dallas, where's he going? He's got a Austin. Oh, to Austin. Then he'll fly around, I'm sure. Sure. They, you got to have the picture of the president flying over the damaged area. Looking out the window. That's essential. Right. Otherwise. Solemn face. Yeah. Otherwise, you didn't show up. And apparently Melania will be going with president today. So um, that's uh, that's all underway. And, uh, you know, we'll get to all that fun, plus, of course, some empty news and some local headlines and national headlines. Terry, let's get to the national. What else should we be paying attention to? So as you were saying, President Trump to visit Texas today, landing in Corpus Christi. He also visit Austin. Austin has a FEMA headquarters, and they're using that to stage FEMA. and kind of organize the uh, rescue effort. He, uh, he may return to Texas on Saturday and also visit Louisiana, where floodwaters are growing and may get worse later this week. Trump said Monday in a joint news conference with the president of Finland to the people of Texas and Louisiana, we are 100% with you. We're praying for you. We're working closely with your leaders and officials, and I will be visiting the impact zone tomorrow to ensure that you're receiving full support and cooperation from the federal government. We pledge your full support as Texas and Louisiana battle to recover from this very devastating and historic storm. Uh, the storm moved into the Gulf of Mexico, where it has regained a bit of strength with max winds at 45 miles an hour. According to meteorologists, the storm is expected to make landfall again east of Galveston, Texas, late Tuesday or early Wednesday. It will then speed up and weaken by Thursday into a depression over northern Louisiana. Meteorologists predict 50 total inches of rain in some areas by Thursday. So wow. it's going to go get a little bit more steam and chug back on shore. And then Harvey could fall into a depression. Yeah. So what does a, what does a storm do once it's depressed? Why don't you ask Pluto? What does a planet do when That's a good point. he's depressed? Sulk in the outer reaches of the galaxy. It just, <laughs> Pluto, gets, you know, it just right? gets ugly. Uh, as, as frequent weather checkers will know, the National Weather Service signifies total rainfall on a map using an array of colors. Varying shades of green mark areas where total rainfall ranges from 0.1 inch to 1.5 inches, while the deepest shade of red marks areas where the total rainfall is between 10 and 15 inches. Prior to Tropical Storm Harvey, the National Weather Service scale topped off at 15 plus inches of rain, but Harvey's record rainfall, which battered Texas, a coast over the weekend forced the National Weather Service to add a few new colors to its key. Hmm. Now a deep purple hue representing rainfall of 15 to 20, 
uh, inches, shades of mu- uh, much of southern Texas. Two lighter shades of purple were also depicted uh, for 20 to 30 inches of rain. And then there, I think there's another color for greater than 30 inches of rain, which they're going to approach here oh, wow. in the next few days. So in some areas of Houston, total rainfall last 72 hours as high as 39 inches. Some areas are expected to get up to 50, as we've been saying. So they, the National Weather Service had to go back in and adjust everything they're doing to add more colors to the uh, <laughs> So your your TV. We need fuchsia. We need more fuchsia. Over uh, yesterday, amidst all the hurricane coverage, North Korea fired three missiles towards Japan. Japanese broadcasters announced early Tuesday, um, citing uh, the the government, the missiles passed over Japan, landed in the ocean. A South Korean news agency reported citing military intelligence. North American Aerospace Defense Command, man, NORAD, uh, determined the missiles launched from North Korea did not. Who's a threat to North America? The White House said in a statement, all options are on the table. I'm sure what that means, but, you know, they're there. Uh, the story leaves out the part where Godzilla was attacking Japan from the other side of the oh, island so was, and North so Korea just was help. just helping. That's really They leave cool. that part out did conveniently. They, did they hit Godzilla? <laughs> did they get him? Again, no reports. Holy cow. I mean, he's out there. Oh, boy. It's where he hangs out, right? Okay. No news means good news, though. Well, sometimes. I just wish we get more Godzilla reporting. <laughs> It terrified everyone in Japan uh, in, on this island. It's, I mean, you could see they were trying to shoot the gap. It looks like between yeah. two of the Japanese islands, and but it, the the alarms went off, sirens mm-hmm. go off that there's a missile attack. Yeah. So then, what do you do? You just they should say Godzilla has been seen in the area, but they didn't clarify that. Not to make light of the situation. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, terrifying. They were telling people to. Like hunker in place, not hunker, but you know what I mean. They try yeah. to, you know, shelter yeah. in place. And well, what do you do? There's missiles raining down. You can't really. I mean, where do you run? Boy, what is he doing? He's just Kim, 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 Kim. His entire power base is the fact that he has these missiles. Yeah, and nobody but can stop. He's him. going to. Does he not know who he's messing with? Well, but I mean, uh, you've got two highly reactive leaders that could yeah. start a war. But at the same time, no, <laughs> nobody wants to launch the missiles, you'd hope. Well, Kim does. Man, well, I don't think they can hear you. Can they hear me when I talk n- through my teeth? N- no. Holy cow. And, and a piece of uh, trivial news. Yeah. Uh, those waiting to upgrade their iPhones can expect to see the new options on September 12th. New options? Yes, the Wall Street Journal reports that uh, as the date for the next Apple product unveiling is on the 12th, assuming in that case last-minute production glitches could throw off the schedule, whatever, customers should be able to order about 10 days afterwards. That's usually how it works. Mm. Uh, Apple is expected to offer update, updated versions of the iPhone 7 and the iPhone 7 Plus, usually calling them the iPhone 7S Ooh. and the 7S Plus. That's usually how they do it. Yeah. <laughs> but most eyes will be on the new iPhone 8, rumored to be an ambitious upgrade to mark the phone's 10th anniversary. In addition to the phones, Apple's also expected to unveil an upgrade uh, for the Apple Watch and Apple TV. And expect to pony up. Uh, have you heard the price for the iPhone 8? What? $10 billion. They're expecting over thousand $1,000 a phone. Wow, that is an aggressive upgrade. Oh, come on. Really? That's what they're saying. Well, you know why? They got to pay for Tim Cook's payoff. Apparently, Tim Cook's making uh, CEO of Apple is now received $89 million of stock last week. $89 million in stock. He's doing his job. $89 million. How many billions do they have sitting in Ireland right now? Yeah. Apparently, he hit key performance targets, so they're like, we're going to give you some more stock. 
and then he has to pay like half of that in taxes. But he then has $43 million in stock, which will eventually turn into tens of billions of trillions of dollars. Mm. Are these CEOs overpaid? I don't know if you heard $89 million. How is that relative to what they made as a company? But what part of that had anything to do with Tim Cook? He's the leader. And? He set a deal with the board. They gave him you know, payment. I mean, that's how it works. You, you make a deal. Everyone agrees. What's Tim Cook's greatest innovation? He led the company after its founder died and didn't run the thing into the ground. Okay. There you go. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, so he, he didn't destroy it. It was expe- – people were like, oh, you know, he's not going to be able to – Jobs was so innovative. He was such a such genius. A genius. There's no way. You know, yeah. And he's been able to just keep growing the company. Wouldn't that be great if that was the bar that was set for everything we did? Yeah. Just don't run it into the ground oh, yeah. and you've done an excellent job. That would be such a break. It's like yesterday in the NFL. Matthew Stafford from yeah. the Detroit Lions signs a five-year, $135 million – basically $27 million a year he's going to get to basically be very mediocre in Detroit. Well, yeah. Well, but all he has to do is be less mediocre than the mediocre person before him. Yeah. Thank heavens for mediocrity. We've actually got a story coming up in the next hour about a government official who basically admitted to not working very hard mm. as he was butt-dialing a reporter. Hold, hold, hold it. In, in our government? Yeah, it's in a local government. Or was it, in local. Na- was it in some other government? It was in North Korea. And we're government. not talking millions, but we're talking hundreds of thousands. It was in New York City. Really? In New York, this guy was doing this, and he got caught. But it's funny. The story how he got caught was pretty funny. Because he accidentally butt-dialed somebody. Yeah, and then admitted to, you know. <laughs> you all right? Sorry. Did you guys hear Tim Cook, $89 million? <laughs> yes, you've mentioned that. <laughs> oh, hold on. Hillary has something to say. Well, that was Hillary's sympathy cough for you. I, it's a sympathy cough. I really do have a lot of sympathy for Hillary. Hmm. Our coughs, I mean. Oh, okay, good. And getting into vans. Yep. I think I've struggled getting into a van before, too. But who hasn't? Yeah. I mean, some of those vans are really lifted. Okay. And well, she wasn't really struggling. It was more of the two guys trying to lift her semi-lifeless body into the van. It was a she, struggle problem. Actually, she was asleep. There's so much that could have <laughs> happened right before that video was taken. Maybe she had just been to an all-you-can-eat buffet at Sizzler. Uh, but, have you, you ever know? done the all-you-can-eat at her Sizzler? Her toes dragging across the cement Sorry. really sold the whole thing. <laughs> They're like, you ruined my shoes. I don't even know the name of a good shoe. Gucci? They make bags. I you were, that's saying. what I was going to say, Gucci, yeah. but then, like, that's a bag. See, we don't know. Yeah. Skechers. Her Skechers. You were... ruined my Skechers. <laughs> Darn you, kids. Oh, well. What do you do? Isn't that great? You know what's fun is we can always go back to Hillary Clinton's cough and dragging her into a van. That's always something that's there. It's been immortalized here on the Matt Townsend Show. Yeah. Yeah. Some wish it was more mortal. So it would just die. <laughs> so that joke could just die. But as long as we've got a hotkey for it, folks, it's coming back. We will uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about heroes and American politics. Uh, pretty interesting insight about how we see those with the valor and exercising valor. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. 
are your heroes? You know, depending on who you ask, the answer can be very different. Children might look up to their parents or even movie superheroes. But if you ask someone off the streets or a politician, they might answer with a friend or a colleague. Here to talk with us about hero- heroism in the and um, in their new book, "Where Have All the Heroes Gone?" The changing nature of American valor are the authors of the book, uh, Bruce Peabody and Krista Jenkins. Both are um, professors at Fair- Farley Dixon. Man, I'm having a hard morning. Farley Dickinson University, and uh, they join us today to walk us through their research and help us better understand. Uh, how today we view our heroes. We appreciate both of you being with us today. Bruce and Krista, thank you for your time. Thank you. Happy to be here with you. This is, this is uh, what an interesting time to get this book out and to, and to be talking to you about the book, actually. Um, Bruce, first of all, why, why the focus on heroes and, um, and kind of the review of what happened to American Valor? Sure. So it's something we'd been thinking about for a while, and uh, we'd noticed that it's a term and an idea that a lot of people in at least some circles bandy about a lot, but I think we were particularly interested in the question as political scientists, as, as people studying politics, how, how are heroes used, deployed by uh, political figures and, and in ways that have a uh, political value. Hmm. And because, again, uh, today with, uh, you know, the unrest in the United States because of Confederate statues and monuments, um, a lot of heroes are now in question and and are actually even being used politically. Uh, What do you think, Krista? How how do you define a hero? That's a great question. That was one of the things that that we struggled with as well, um, because – uh, you know, on the one hand, it, it seems as if heroes are almost ubiquitous. Um, you know, somebody does something, you know, within the line of their, their profession or, you know, they extend a helping hand to somebody else, and oftentimes that can be elevated to the status of a hero. But then at the same time, there are all of these um, legendary heroes, the ones who have, um, you know, put themselves at risk uh, when they weren't even expected to. Um, if you think about war heroes, and then, of course, going back in time to George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, et cetera. So that was something that we, that we uh, you know, struggled with at the beginning. And over the course of our research, we really, I think, came up with uh, this understanding that, that there are what we would call sort of the democratic heroes, the democratizing of the, of the, the word hero, where it's becoming increasingly easy for people to um, achieve that status. And then you also have sort of the greatness heroes, the legendary ones, um, the ones from our history, and then, of course, the ones who um, really do extend themselves in such a way that they are risking you know, their life or limb in order to help someone else. So um, it's not an easy question to answer, but I think those are the two terms that we've come up with in our research to help distinguish between the two that are often deployed um, by both the public, uh, the media, and political elites. So the democratic hero, if I get this right, is, is more... Uh kind of the war hero, um, and then the great heroes are the ones that are kind of have, have stood the test of time over time. Well, yes and no. I mean, I think when we, we use the term democ- the, the, the democratizing trend in hero references, we're talking about, um, for lack of a better term, sort of the relative ease with which yeah. that, that term is increasingly used, right? Yeah. Um, so, for example, when we, were, when we were writing the book, we would, we would frequently come upon, you know, these sort of popular... Uh, culture references to heroes. So, for example, we once saw a bumper sticker that said, 
uh, be the designated driver, be a hero, huh. right? That, that idea that, um, that things like that are suddenly elevated to hero status. Interesting, yeah. And when you think about it, Bruce, I, I mean, I, I guess, do we... Do you notice that, or are we rewriting kind of our history? And and even right now, it seems like a great debate about who qualifies to be a hero, uh, as far as far as the great the greatness heroes go. Sure. So yeah, just to add a quick gloss to uh, what Krista was saying, I think for the for the kind of picture of the greatness hero, it's a really long tradition, right? So for a lot of people, if uh, who think about this idea of Great heroes goes back at least as far as ancient Greece and Achilles, something like that. I mean, those heroes were seen as you know, literally supposed to be demigods, half gods, half humans. Right. In the in the kind of American picture, I think that there is a great tradition hero. They don't have to be literal demigods, but they are these figures that are kind of larger than life. Uh, they are these figures that have you know, really meet high standards of, of character and ability some kind of extraordinary attribute. Uh, they tend to assume great risk, usually of a physical sort, and stand for some really important cause bigger than themselves. So in terms of your question about evolution, I think that the idea is it's not that these great heroes have entirely disappeared. There is, uh, there is still some you know, reference to kind of larger-than-life figures in our, in our political discourse and in the ways we talk about these things. But... I think there's that picture is diluted or or muddied a bit by a lot of these presentations of the what Krista called the democratic heroes, these folks who are or animals. I just saw a story in the Houston Chronicle today of this widely circulated image of a, a dog carrying a bag of food. Yeah. And the uh, you know it's identified as a hero. I kept on looking. Well, what was the heroic act? It seems to be that the heroic act of the dog is picking up a dog with a bag of its own food. Well, that could be survival, one might think. But in any event, um, the things have changed in part, I think, because that um, that kind of clearer picture and demanding picture of great heroism is getting washed up with these less demanding and more democratic images. Why, in the end, I guess, Krista, why and does it matter? I mean, because if all of a sudden we're blurring where almost anything can become a, a, like a democratic or the democratization of a hero, anything, including a dog, could become a, a hero. Um, what happens to us as a society when we uh, denigrate, I guess, this title of hero, you know, and, and spread it yeah. so thin? Well, let me let me just say that that's that's that um, that might be the distinction that we're making between these two types. But actually, the point of our book is to argue that that the public in general um, has actually not entirely bought into this democratizing trend in the usage of the word hero. Um, we argue through our research that it's it's really there's a disjuncture between how um, political elites and the media use the term versus how the public kind of resonates to that term. Hmm. And so the point that we make is that if you just look at public opinion data over time. And you also talk to people today in focus groups and sort of these in-depth interviews that we conducted. Um, we find that the public continues to largely hold this notion of greatness heroism, right, that you really have to be someone exceptional, you have to stand for a cause larger than yourself, et cetera, the kind of points that Bruce raised um, in order to be a hero. Um, whereas it's the political elites and it's the media who have really um, hedged toward this more democratizing trend um, in the words usage. 
Um, and we explain, you know, why we think that that's the case um, in the book. But, um, I, you know, I didn't want to leave you with the assumption yeah. that that's our takeaway, that everybody now is embracing this. Um, and as for the question of, of you know, why it matters, um, you know, I, I, we, we, again, again, we raise a couple of points in the book. I mean, one of the things is that we think that when you use the term hero, it, it functions as somewhat of a, a political social socialization tool, meaning that if, if you're a hero, um, it's supposed to convey to people this sense of what it means to be um, sort of an active, informed, um, you know, citizen in our, in our democracy. And um, so we're concerned that obviously if that, if that usage gets increasingly democratized and, and sort of watered down, it means that everybody kind of thinks that all you have to really do is be a good person to be a good citizen, when in fact we think that, that there should be something more um, expected um, of people in our democracy. Hmm. Does I mean, that's, that's actually a very interesting concept, isn't it? That um, And back to your comment about political elites and media are maybe pushing more of the democratization of it. What, what do you think is behind that? Is it just is it just language that we're using? Is it just the term they're using and they throw it out too lightly? Or And why is there such a disconnect from what the public sees? I guess the public is kind of trying to hold to that that greater hero standard. Yeah, go for it, Bruce. Sure. So so I think I mean, we're not historians, but in, in our research, we kind of point to some periods in the 1960s, some developments for both political figures, for both our leaders and for media figures, where that era started to create or exacerbate pressures, different kinds of pressures for those two groups that made the hero narrative, the hero story, hero talk especially attractive. So in the case of politicians, we associate the 60s into the 70s with measurable distrust in our governing institutions, right? This is the era of greater uh, civil rights consciousness, but certainly an era of greater skepticism about how our institutions have uh, uh, perhaps not uh, protected our rights uh, vigorously enough. It's also an era eventually of uh, growing protest about Vietnam, uh, the Watergate uh, scandal, and uh, it's a real measurable moment for a decline in political trust that really hasn't been interrupted since. So how do heroes fit into that? Well, I think for a lot of leaders... Having a hero, being able to anoint somebody as a hero, being able to pin a medal, being able to make a speech about a hero at the 4th of July, being able to flag somebody's ordinary actions as heroic in a newsletter, it seems like a way to try to repair that breach, to fix the the trust gap uh, once again. We don't think, from our research, it's been terribly effective, but it does explain the move for politicians for for journalists, for, for media figures, it's a little different. Uh, we, we think of today for sure, but uh, as an era of great competition, we think of the 1960s as an important turning point for kind of a growing, uh, increasingly skeptical media, one that has a more negative dimension in a lot of the reporting. And the hero story is a pretty easily packaged uh, account that makes for a dramatic news story, uh, a seemingly easy frame to, to write a story about. So again, different kinds of pressures or incentives for these different groups to talk about heroes, uh, but those are distinct from the kind of ongoing demanding standards that we think a lot of Americans, uh, ordinary Americans have. 
Do you do you see any consensus, Krista, on on a, a modern day hero? Is there is there a hero that is uh, you know in the spotlight today that actually stands the test of time and maybe reaches the level of greatness hero? Great question. Uh, not, no one that's coming to mind. Um, Bruce may be able to help me out here, but I, I can't think of anyone that, you know, and the, the measure that I'm using for assessing whether or not somebody stands the test of time in contemporary, you know, contemporary times is, you know, if you look at, um, you know, public opinion data, if that same person is asked about uh, whether or not they're a hero, and obviously there's some difficulty in doing this because you're relying on, you know, pollsters to ask repeated questions that might be on a subject that is not entirely newsworthy, that not too many people are really interested in. But in any event, I can't think of anybody hmm. that we've that we've observed in our research that, you know, shows up, I guess, you know, Martin Luther King, perhaps, yeah. um, you know, that that one. Uh, but other than that, I'm, I can't think of anybody else. Bruce, can you? Yeah, it was, it's, so we took a look at this from a couple of different angles, but one of those angles was talking to people from different uh, generations in, in our focus groups. And there wasn't any widespread consensus there. There, there. As Krista mentioned, a lot of people from these different age groups, everybody from folks uh, born after the war, the boomers, to, uh, to millennials, a, a lot of people in these different age groups uh, did mention some of the civil rights uh, icons, Martin Luther King. Actually, co- folks from a couple of groups um, mentioned Muhammad Ali, but but we suspect mm-hmm. that was hmm. partially because he was in the, in the news around that time. Um, but part of what's interesting is that we think that lack of consensus over these greatness heroes really reflects some of these trends that we talked about. So it's, you know, it's harder and harder to believe that somebody is impermeable or, or uh, mm-hmm. great, more exceptional than the rest of us in an environment where especially media uh, figures have a pretty unrelenting negativism and, and certainly an interest in showing the uh, rise and fall of, of these figures and, and their feet of clay. Yeah. We are speaking with uh, Dr. Uh, Bruce Peabody and Dr. Krista Jenkins, both professors of political science at Farley Dickinson University in Madison, New Jersey. We are discussing their book, Where Have All the Heroes Gone? The Changing Nature of American Valor. We will continue this journey and uh, try to do what we can to understand uh, what makes a hero and and uh, how we come together on the concept of uh, of heroism, discerning between the different types of heroes. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to help you be the good in the world. We'll be right back. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. We're talking heroes today with uh, Bruce Peabody and Krista Jenkins, both professors of political science at Farley Dickinson University in Madison, New Jersey. We're discussing their book, Where Have All the Heroes Gone? The Changing Nature of American Valor. And uh, again, thank you both for your time and being with us today. Thank you. Our pleasure. For me, um, boy, you, you've—I think you've done a, a really good job helping us understand kind of the delineation of what how we see hero, heroism today. Democratic heroes, kind of the democratization, where really the relative ease where anybody 
can become a hero, a dog carrying its own food in Houston, or just, you know, the, the, the patient surviving cancer. It, it gets this feeling of, of, uh, of, of heroism. And then we get to kind of the greatness heroes, those that um, have, have kind of stood more of the test of time, maybe our founding fathers, or I guess in some ways, uh, some more recent ones, Martin Luther King Jr., others. Um, I, I guess there's kind of the international fair. I'm assuming does does a Gandhi, does a Mother Teresa kind of meet that? Does a Mandela meet those levels? Sure. I mean, those were names that we certainly heard uh, mentioned in the focus groups that we conducted, and then you know we certainly saw those names reflected in some of the public opinion data. Um, although it was interesting um, when it came to Mother Teresa, particularly among the younger group that we spoke with, the um, uh, the millennials, when we had our focus groups. Um, it was interesting for them to say things like, you know, even, for example, a Mother Teresa, you'll hear about, you know, all of the good that she did, but then the media is also keen on pointing out, you know, how she might not have lived up to the, the image that she had. Hmm. So that was really interesting. I guess that's a weird, I guess that's part of the problem or the issue with this is we now have a media that is maybe more intrusive and maybe not allowing the veneer of heroism to stand, <laughs> like they chip away at it. I think that's true, yeah. and that's obviously a mixed uh, alloy or a mixed blessing there. Yeah. Uh, on the one hand, we that that uh, penetrating gaze and that skepticism has an effect on some of these institutions, and, and heroism is clearly in our sights. On the other hand, we get some goods from a media that is highly engaged, assertive, even aggressive, and uh, doesn't take uh, the, the narratives, the stories handed to them by political figures as, uh, as, as the truth, but, but pushes on it and uh, tries to uncover the story. So we're not, I don't think, uh, I think it's fair to say uh, that Chris and I aren't yearning for an earlier golden age, but uh, we're trying to make sense of the complicated world we're in now where it's it sure is hard to be a, a national great hero. Mm. And we had the big debate uh, that President Trump inserted himself into about um, uh, John McCain. And is John McCain a true hero? What did, did he come up in any of the research? So, yeah, I mean, that's a real that really showed us that this is a uh, live wire issue. We encountered the McCain hero matter and controversy in in a couple of ways, right? First, it came up in the summer of 2015 when uh, Trump, uh, then-candidate Trump, seemed to go out of his way to poke a stick at at John McCain by by saying, as you're you're intimating, that he didn't like his, uh, he preferred his heroes who weren't uh, weren't captured, a reference to McCain's entertainment during the Vietnam War. But then more recently, of course, when uh, uh, Senator McCain was diagnosed with brain cancer, number of figures on both the left and right uh, uh, came spontaneously to salute uh, Senator McCain and call him a hero, seemingly recalling that flap between McCain and um, and Trump during the 2015 part of the campaign. Hmm. Does And then President Obama um, ended up giving what was it, the Medal of Valor to uh, Vice President Biden. Uh, I believe it was the Medal of Valor is – I mean I guess are we redefining I – mean, it seems like the Medal of Valor was given to soldiers that were giving their lives in war and one of the highest honors you can give and maybe I'm mistaken. But 
I guess have we have we redefined it to such a point that it's um, we've taken maybe some of the bravery, some of the courage, and um, and and valor out of it, and made it people that just do good things. Yes, I mean I think that's that's the point that we're that we're making. That you know, for example, the the point that you're raising about Vice President Biden, um, perhaps in you know previous eras he would not have received that medal. Um, because the political elites and the media would not have necessarily recognized that as something worthy of that designation. Mm. Uh, so it would be interesting to see if over time, you know, if we were able to track this, if the people's attitudes toward that particular, you know, um, elevation of Joe Biden as a hero, you know, holds water today. And, and if it does, if it would even, you know, maintain that, that level of, you know, commitment over time. Mm. And, and the context definitely matters. So by some of our measures, Things like the Medal of Honor, the uh, one of the highest commendations that uh, that the government recognizes by by a lot of measures, including the rates of issuance of the Medal of Honor, we we don't find an obvious inflation. It, it's still really hard to get a Medal of Honor, but that's so. So I think I think it's not as though commendation for genuine valor and for these self-sacrificing deeds is entirely extinct. It's just kind of swept up and, and, uh, and lost in this more general celebration. So just to put a, you know, close the circle on, on, on the, the medal issue, while you've got the Medal of Honor really hard to acquire, one of the examples we cite in the book is uh, President Reagan issuing uh, a number of commendations, less than a Medal of Honor for sure, after the uh, uh, military um, invasion of Grenada in 1983, mm. uh, the Pentagon awarded almost 9,000 commendations for what was uh, you know, a very small operation by uh, historical standards, especially since fewer than 7,000 American soldiers participated. Some commentators noted there were more commendations <laughs> than out than actual soldiers participating. <laughs> well, they had family. Come on. They had family. That's true, and, and maybe you know the occasional valorous pet. So the, yeah. one, one doesn't carrying want to the food. These sure. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. so is it, I guess apparently it seems to be getting easier to get uh, some of these commendations, some of these awards. It sure does. It sure does. You know, and that's certainly consistent with what we've been uh, observing. I mean, it's kind of for for many of our leaders, it's a it's a it's a cost free proposition. You 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 uh, recognize a hero. No one's going to be petty enough, as Chris and I are, to, to question their bona, bona fides, but uh, it might stick, uh, so you think, or it might uh, at least put you in a favorable spotlight to, to recognize these folks. So it, yeah. it seems like a relatively cost-free proposition. Kristen, is, Krista, is it, a, is, it a, is it kind of a human, inherent human need to look for heroes? I mean, we have everything from superheroes in, in comic books um, to then, you know, basically naming every brave act as heroic, uh, to then military heroes, to then the general great heroes of our of our history. Is this just are humans drawn to find the stellar, you know, courageous person? I think so. Uh, if you think back to your early school days, uh, it's not uncommon for young kids to. Um, becomes, you know, socialized around this notion of there being, you know, heroes and to, you know, be able to identify them and to, you know, seek them out, you know, as, as inspiration, as guidance, really, for how you might want to live your life. 
what was interesting when we did um, uh, the research, and, and particularly in, in the focus groups, but also we saw this in public opinion data, is um, a willingness of people to basically, you know, if, if they were asked, can you identify a hero today that, that has inspired you, something along those lines, we would often hear people say, um, not a public person, but somebody in their own life, my mm. mother, my father, my aunt, uh, a grandmother, someone who endured adversity and was able to, you know, rise above it and, and has helped me become a better person. So I think that was that was rather interesting because going into this myself, I was sort of expecting people to have these kind of public personas when they think of heroes. But a lot of people really look at their own families and their own, you know, small social circles for, for inspiration. That's okay, – yeah, please – yeah, go right ahead, Bruce. Sure. So, so in addition to the kind of psychological, uh, almost uh, human aspect of uh, of the necessity of heroism that Krista points out, we also looked at it from the perspective of kind of the not inevitability, but the the special functions that heroes provide politically. So, for a lot of societies, not just ours, the idea of a hero is a valuable kind of lever or or promise or reward for getting people to do unpleasant things. I mean, historically, it's been going to war, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but it could certainly be other difficult, um, valuable projects that people don't want to contribute to, but the language and the commendation and the public honor of heroism helps them to, uh, to put, their, uh, put their lot in for. So civil rights, I think, is a good example. Yeah. Right? It's, uh, it's a good, good for, for everyone, but uh, certainly in the 50s and 60s, it was a good that carried the risk of violence with it. And it's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is almost like it's a currency, isn't it? It's a, there's, there's a cachet to this ability to, to lean on your courage. And then um, I guess I look at it too that, boy, I kind of love the idea that people are turning maybe away from a public leader if they don't trust him, if they don't believe in institutions, and back to family um, do you see a disadvantage of of people turning to their own family and their own personal life to find their heroes versus having kind of the national iconic hero? I don't. I I, I don't think it really is an either or situation. I think you know. I think it's obviously better when you can have both. Yeah. It's certainly wonderful to be able to say that somebody in you know very close to you has inspired you and and helped you become a better person. Um, but I also think having these kind of you know, moments where we can unite around someone that we all agree on has done amazing things and really warrants his status is, is good as well. I mean, Bruce pointed out the recent example of, you know, John McCain and the fact that we saw this uh, rather unusual bipartisan uh, support for him as he faces this illness and, you know, invoking the name hero or the, the, the word hero in describing him. I think that's good. I mean, we have so many instances in this country of us being divided and fractured that when we can identify somebody that we all believe kind of meets this this criteria of being a hero, I don't think that's bad either. And, and what do you think? We've only got about a minute, but I'd love to hear from both of you. And, Bruce, we can start with you. What do you think about the rewriting of heroes? I mean, the Robert E. Lee statues, all of the kind of Confederate leaders. Um, uh, what, what do you think about – I guess the discussions about are they heroes and heroic, I guess that's good. Um, But where do you think this goes going forward? So, I mean, it's hard to know where it goes going forward. Obviously, in in a specific example of the Confederate statues, there's an open debate now just about kind of what to do 
next? Uh, I heard a really interesting idea floated yesterday that you leave some of the pedestals where the uh, Confederate uh, soldiers and uh, generals were uh, just bare uh, as a mm. reminder that there was something there, but uh, but certainly as a kind of prompt for, for citizens to recognize that and a, a political informed decision was made to no longer valorize these figures that were rebels against the Union and supporting uh, the cause of slavery. So uh, those are, I'm not sure that there's you know, much of a national debate on whether, there is, there is something of a national debate on whether they're heroes, but there's also a question about um, how to kind of recognize and, and uh, reconcile the, the sacred space where, uh, where these figures were, right. what's going to be the role, what's going to be, what's going to fill that void. Yeah. What do you think, Krista? Final words. Well, final words. I guess I would say that the debate over, you know, their removal and, and, and what happens is, is very much, I think, keeping in line with, with the nature of what we've done, which is really try to unpack this notion of what a hero is and the various definitions that people bring to that subject. Yeah, beautiful work. Uh, Where Have All the Heroes Gone is the name of the book, The Changing Nature of American Valor by uh, Drs. Bruce Peabody and Krista Jenkins. We appreciate both of you for your time and your insights. Uh, Really powerful when you think about who you consider to be a hero. Where do you go shopping for the hero? Do you look uh, at, you know, in the comic books, do you find your hero in your family? Uh, Or can you find a modern-day hero Powerful, powerful uh, models. And again, maybe it's getting harder and harder as the media, you know, they're maybe providing more scrutiny, more understanding, more insight into the human behind the hero. Powerful stuff. Continue with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. I'm ready to go in, coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, heroes, uh, we we classify them a lot of different ways. There's kind of that democratic and the democratization of hero where we have everybody could become a hero by overcoming cancer, over uh, taking on a difficult challenge. I guess in the end, um, what might matter more than how we categorize a hero is simply what it, what the hero helps us be. And what I look for in my hero is I want to elevate my life, right? I want to take my life to another level. And we may not ever be able to, with full scrutiny, be able to have a hero that that exemplifies everything we need. Everything we want, especially when you have a media pressing against it or maybe not wanting to hold up that standard. But uh, I think it's important that we find somebody. This is why I believe religion is is a very important thing where you could hold up a deity, a god, um, somebody that could hold all of the the cards for being a great hero. We need somebody to look to because if you don't, then who do you look to? And where do you create kind of that stable belief system to move forward? So uh, find your heroes. They're somewhere, and they can start just with mom and dad. They can start with an extended family member or just somebody that you you revere. Take the parts that that really are essential to uh, to their to what they've done. That's amazing, and just try to live those. We don't need to find the perfect person. We can always you know rely to a higher power to find that better and bigger hero. 
That's uh, hour number one of the program. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Yes, welcome back, friends. Happy morning to you. Uh, hopefully, you're. Um, happy morning. Yeah, like it's morning. So be happy about it? Yeah. All right. It's like it's a happy afternoon. I will admit it's morning, happy evening, but I'm not going to say I'll be happy about it. You're usually more of a top of the morning kind of guy. <laughs> top of the morning to you. Oh well, Julie Rose had a conversation with him, and he can't use the word top yeah. anymore. Oh, they've cornered the top market. All right. Well, what are you going to do? Nah, she did not. We've got a great show. We will be. Um, we're going to talk about men and their emotions today. <sighs> what was that, Terry? Just emotions. We you, don't have any. Yes, you do. Society has told us we're not supposed to show them. Terry. Keep them hidden. Take that ice pick and chip away at your heart and let the warm little beating monster out. Isn't that called murder when you go stabbing at your heart with an ice pick? It's a good point. It's all, it's all metaphorical. I see. So we're trying to thaw the coldness mm. of the male. And our guest is saying we think men don't have emotions, but they do. This strikes at the core of the structure of society. Men have a soft underbelly, like a porcupine. That, you get the belly part right. That once, what, that once you roll that little porcupine over, you just want to tickle that little belly. Men are people, too. Yeah. No, duh. I was reading a thing over the weekend. Masculinity is defined by what it's not. Ooh, yeah. We're huh? not soft. We're not... It- Caring and kind. We're not giving, but we are. Oh, we are. It's never really defined by what it's purporting to be. It's always, oh, I'm not this, I'm not that. I'm like, not, you know. When was the last time, Jeff, that you had a really good cry? Oh, I'm a crybaby. Okay, sorry. Yeah. I cry on the show all the time. What I are you know talking you do. about? I know. Uh, yeah. That, right when I asked that, I thought I should have asked it to Terry. Terry, when was the last time you broke down and had a really good cry? Ten? When I was ten, maybe? No, no, no. When they when they took your trees down in your yard, I was good. You sat there just emoting, crying like mostly <laughs> like that. It's pretty cool because they had a bucket truck and yeah. they're moving the guy up through all the branches. That was pretty cool to watch. And you yeah. say you don't have emotion? Well, it's like you ha- were giddy. Well, yeah, but I I portray it in a very uh, socially accepted way. When you go, alright, right, so cool. <laughs> I'll always remember. Speaking of masculinity, yeah, I was a big fan of Home Improvement growing up. The show with Tim Allen, yeah, and Jill, in one episode, says that she the knew wife. she wanted to marry him when they were at the movies, and she looked over and he was crying, and then he explained it's because you finished my milk duds. <laughs> See, I would cry over milk duds. See, you guys, we're, we will open up your heart and your mind today. A really good milk dud when it's fresh and not rock hard, mm. it is a thing of beauty. Oh, man. You guys are so shallow. Hey, we're talking about our feelings. Oh, yeah, emotions, sorry. Matt. Come yeah. on. I would love to have seen you at the birth of your beautiful babies because I bet you were a mess. No, actually, I was doing pretty well. The wife, not so much, but she was you know, being taken care of. Oh, man. 
Well, okay. We'll see what we can do there. We'll yeah, be, I, uh, I asked my wife, is there a problem? I didn't even cry when my kids were born. Is there a problem there? Did you cry on the inside? No. I was happy that it was over because that is not a happy way to enter the world. Yeah, well, you imagine being the baby. Oh, exactly. So I'm like, you come, had here, it easy. come here, guy. I'm the nice parent. <laughs> I don't put you three things yeah. like that. Let me get you away from that lady. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just – and I'll give you your first bath. Right. Those are great moments. Oh, now there's – you know what? Yeah, eventually you'll have teenage kids that you can't even get to take a bath. Before, you could just put them in the little sink and wash them all up and they just would just squirm and oh. – And now, like you said, it's Axe body spray. Now they just soak them in Axe and – It's covered up. Move on. Send them out to the – just the hormone stench. Of high school. Of high school. <laughs> okay, let's uh, let's move on. We've got a lot to cover today. A lot of empty news. Uh, you won't believe it. In fact, even a farmer, by the way, is um, getting in trouble. He may have sprayed Border Patrol with manure, the old manure spray. And uh, yeah, no, just got a lot of empty news for us. Um, we're trying to stay on the best we can. The Houston story. Houston continues to receive rain uh, and flooding. And it's moving, I guess, east uh, into East Texas. Eventually, it'll make its way over over the next few days into uh, Louisiana. So, boy, again, our prayers, we can't say it enough. Our prayers are with you. Plus, if you want to donate, go find credible places to donate. The Red Cross would be a great place to start, and they'll they'll probably take and need everything they can get their hands on. So we'll we'll continue to update you there. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what else should we be paying attention to? Houston's Attics Reservoir is expected to spill over today for the first time in history amid unprecedented rainfall and flooding in the aftermath of Hurricane Harvey. Just as note, I'm looking on Google Maps to see where it was. It's kind of in the western it's part of the Attics? city. Yeah, A-D-D-I-C-K-S. Oh. And it's uh, it's got like what, four and a half stars, nine reviews on Google Maps? Ooh. So it might be an okay destination once all the water's out. Um, <laughs> but the Army Corps of Engineers reported homes upstream from the reservoir and uh, Barker Dam, which is also in the area, are beginning to flood. Harris County Flood Control meteorologists told Fox News that their expected spillover will dramatically affect nearby neighborhoods in the Houston Northwest Corridor. A spillover would be uncharted territory as mm-hmm. the dam spillway has not been activated in the reservoir's 70-year history. They've never had to let water out of this thing. So it's never happened, and now they're already flooded, but now they're going to have to let water out or this this thing could break. Yeah. So they're reporting the dam has been considered in critical condition for years, and concerns have emerged about the dam's control spillover actually functioning. Back to infrastructure. Yeah. And uh, now President Trump will be flying over the scene. The Washington Post reporting eight deaths so far from the storm. Mm. Now, the governor and the police chief have been talking about they haven't really got out into the homes in a search and rescue type. They're they're rescuing. They're not searching. Right? So if someone's dead, they're not going to find them. Well, think of how many homes somebody is already dead in, and they're not even going to get back to it for a week. Right. So we'll... The number is sure to go up. Blah. They're expecting it to go up. They, uh, the entire Texas National Guard is on uh, an, an active duty, I guess. They're Everybody, out there. 12,000 yeah. in, in all will be out there to support the recovery efforts. 20 to 40 inches of rain have already fallen in the Houston area. As of mid-Monday, the highest rain was 39 
inches near Dayton, Texas. Rainfall totals could reach 50 by the end of the week. Greg Abbott said that uh, the governor of Texas, he expects the damage incurred in the state as a result of Harvey to be horrific. The storm finally subsides, leaving behind a mess that will take years to rebuild. Boy. And they're telling everyone, don't don't get impatient here. This will be quite a while to clean this all up. Yeah. This yeah. isn't going to be you know within a couple weeks, so we'll see what happens. Um, in com- completely other news, have nothing to do with Texas. <clears throat> Uber, who? Uber, the co- the, the company. Oh, Uber, that company still. They yeah. finally decided on who's going to be their boss. Their new CEO. He his What's his last name? Dara Kasrau Shahi. He's an Iranian American. Really? Yeah. Excellent. He used to run Expedia. Yeah. So he has no experience in He's this. a travel guy, though. <laughs> He's coming in to, to fix the company, to fix the corporate the culture, the, the culture. And, yeah, and maybe be more, you know, what, uh, gender friendly. Right. They said about two months of searching, several people saying no, several people walking into their boardroom and saying this is the only way I'll do this job, and they're not agreeing with that. You know, that kind of thing was happening over the weekend. The ride service company still is grappling with the overhaul of its workplace culture, a range of legal troubles, and most recently, a bitter board dispute. So, Bitter board dispute! We'll see if the guy from Expedia can fix it. Okay. And finally, two U.S. boxing fans have filed lawsuits against TV cable provider Showtime over the quality of the live stream for the much-hyped weekend fight between really? Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor. Two separate lawsuits. Filed one uh, filed in Oregon federal court by uh, Portland resident Zach Bartel and Victor Malin in uh, New York federal court seek class action status for what they allege were failures in Showtime's pay per view live stream of the match in Las Vegas. Bartle and Mon said they paid ninety nine ninety five for Showtime to watch the match. Bartel's unlawful trade practices lawsuit said that instead of being a witness to history. As promotions for the fight promised, all he saw was grainy video, error screens, and buffer events and stalls. Maul's breach of contract lawsuit says his service continually logged out, and when he was able to watch, the pictures were delayed, cutting out, or otherwise incomplete. Both are seeking jury trials. Oh, brother. Can't they just ask for their $100 back? <laughs> no, it's like, get 100 bucks. You're, you're good, right? They want a jury trial because they're gonna, they think they'll get damages? I guess. What are the, what were your damages? They were not witnesses to history. Psychological, social damages. Maybe they had friends over and it was embarrassing. It wasn't working. Mm. Yeah. You know what they ought to do? Let them get in the ring with McGregor. Right. Loser has to fight all the people that are mad. Hey, if you lose, you still get a hundred million. Yeah, he did, but this guy didn't. This guy just give him his hundred bucks back. Come on. Okay. Well, good luck to that. Good luck to that. Uh, Jeffrey has a crazy story for us in the empty news segment of the show about a farmer who is denying I did not spray manure on that patrol. The empty news team. First on the scene. Fifth on facts. Uh, have you ever been sprayed with manure? Not this week. <laughs> it's been a while. Yeah. So, yeah, there's this guy in Vermont who is denying charges that he sprayed liquid manure on a marked U.S. Customs and Border Protection car after confronting an agent about why he wasn't doing more to arrest people in the country illegally. Ooh. This guy has some problems. So they had a confrontation, and then the manure sprayer accidentally hit the car. There's a lot of talk about gun control, but I think we ought to be careful about who we sell these manure guns to as well. Totally. No, totally. 
53-year-old Mark Johnson pleaded not guilty Thursday to state charges of disorderly conduct and simple assault. I wouldn't call that simple assault. No, that was complex assault. Of a law enforcement officer with fluids. Have you ever assaulted somebody with fluids? Not this week. (laughs) He declined comment afterward. The Border Patrol agent said in court documents that Johnson sprayed the car after a profanity-laced tirade August 3rd, just south of the Canadian border. Johnson said Wednesday he asked the agent why he wasn't doing more to arrest people in the U.S. illegally. Johnson said he didn't know the car was nearby when he turned on his manure spreader. Right. Yeah. Right. Can you, by the way, imagine, just put yourself in the brain of a cow right now who's sitting there thinking, okay, that guy takes my manure and puts it in (laughs) his sprayer and shoots it all over the place. All you'd have to do is let me just wander. He should be suing this guy. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Those cows. Yeah, pretty gross. um, But what are you going to do? You know? Oh, wait a minute. What's this? Uh, I'm getting breaking some breaking news. news. Uh-oh. Uh-oh, I'm getting word from Shik Shumway. He is live on the scene of a slow speed chase. Ooh, let's get You've on seen, that. I mean, usually there are high speed chases, yeah. but this is I a, slow a slow speed, speed chase. chase. Like and, and it involves a turtle. Uh, Shik, what can you tell us? Thanks, Jeff. 35-year-old Aldabra Tortoise Abu is leading police in a slow-speed chase here in Okayama, Japan. The excitement started on August 1st when 121-pound Abu escaped from Shibukawa Animal Park, a maximum security facility. She's been on the run at about 0.17 miles per hour until now and has been able to survive without food and water the whole time. Zoo officials have offered a $4,500 reward for capturing the tortoise, and earlier this morning a family spotted her on a steep hill in a forest 160 feet or so from the zoo. Now, as I said, this is an extremely slow-speed chase, and I'm not sure why the police officers aren't simply walking over to Abu and apprehending her. Perhaps it has something to do with her assault charges from a few years back. We'll give you updates on this exhilarating chase as they become available. Reporting live from Okayama, Japan, this is Shik Shumway. Hmm. Wow. I mean, how, did, how do we get the budget, first of all, to send him to Japan? I don't think we did. He's just there. I think he's there. D- does he think he's going to submit his receipts and um, HR is going to yeah. reimburse him or something? Oh, he's payroll? in for a shocker. Wow. So, okay. I mean, just – Where do we begin with that? Well, obviously it's a snapping turtle. Yeah. Because they're afraid – I mean, all I got to do is run over and just kick it over. Just tip it onto its back and you got, you got her. But it sounds like she has a history there. Yeah, but she's a turtle, right? She can't hurt – she doesn't have like a viper neck. She just can't – she can't even reach past her front leg. So just tip point. her over from her back leg. You got her. Just grab her tail. One point I would make is how unfair is it that they mentioned her weight in yeah. this story? That's sexist. I mean how many times do you do you hear somebody's weight be yeah. brought into a story like this? Well – 
Yeah. I think it's because there's just not a lot going on in the story. I'm telling you, if they maybe if they did that more often, people wouldn't commit so many crimes because they wouldn't want their weight to be public knowledge. 180-pound <laughs> Louisa Jones. Okay, I'll never do it again. <laughs> just be quiet. <laughs> yeah. Her most embarrassing moments. And then you just state all the embarrassing moments. I think what all they need to do is deploy the spike strips. Ooh, and they got yeah. that turtle. That turtle. A turtle can't go over spike strips very fast. That's true. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, can't do anything fast because, as yeah. you heard, that was a .17 miles per hour chase. What's the cop doing? Like, how do you even drive that slow? I don't think. I think he's just parked. <laughs> he's just. <laughs> Did he just park ahead of the turtle and then just wait yeah. for the turtle to come to him? Yeah. And then what? The turtle just walks onto the cop car. It's. Hmm. This is. This is crazy. And again, I appreciate Schick. I really do. Because we never get breaking news. But whenever it comes from Schick, a lot of people question if it's news. But you could hear him. Yeah, that, that was, was great. That was actually incredible. He made it all the way to Japan. I think That's, he was there. He was already there. Yeah. He's on that tuna tour. And his, I, maybe his mic wasn't working or something, so he cared enough about it to phone it in. Yeah, that was good. By the way, maybe tell them going forward, oh, we should always phone it in because that worked really well. But next time, phone in a story that's you know maybe worth chasing. No hmm. pun intended. I mean, I don't want to. I don't want to sound ungrateful. That was breaking news. That was pretty cool. But you know, next time, more than a turtle. Just tip it over. Seems like not a big deal. Anyway, what do I know? Well, that's what we do here on the show, folks. We bring you the latest, the greatest, everything you need to know. There is a turtle, Abu, in a slow-speed chase in Japan. Consider yourself lucky that you don't live in Japan right now. Not only are missiles flying overhead, but turtles are slowly making their way up the street. We'll continue the journey up next. What if he cries? Rick Belden will be joining us, talking to us about uh, the male emotion and, uh, and the emotions that men share and maybe don't share, but still, uh, the, but they're still feeling every day. Our goal, to help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier life. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Men often keep the depth and complexity of their inner lives hidden, tightly away inside of themselves. They do so well. Uh, they do it so well that it is commonly assumed by many that men are cool and calculated beings with uh, with very few complex emotions, especially when compared to women. But nothing could be farther from the truth. And many men, no matter how proactive they may be at hiding their uh, emotions. They are still starving for some sort of uh, safe harbor in their harbor in their lives, somewhere where they could share what they're feeling. We've had Rick on the show before. Rick Belden is a respected explorer and chronicler of uh, psychology and the inner lives of men, and he's been writing for most of his life. Rick, thank you for being back with us. Hey, Matt, it's good to talk to you again. This is such a, I think, an important issue that we needed to have you back because it really just doesn't feel safe for men to cry and um and to and to emote and to share our feelings is this you know 
What's up with that? I mean, it seems like we're in a day and age where so many things are more acceptable than they've ever been. But what about a man sharing his emotions? Well, there are, there are as you know, there are so many different aspects of this that we could dive into. And, and the two that come up for me initially are, uh, first of all, I, I was thinking before the segment about the fact that I'm really starting to understand that a lot of this uh, differs from generation to generation. So I'm 59. Uh, I think for men of my generation, the issue of opening up and being vulnerable emotionally uh, and challenging oneself in that way is is a different issue in some ways than it is for a man who's in his uh, late 20s or early 30s. Um, I think that, uh, that in general, men of those uh, younger men have grown up in a time where there was somewhat more permission uh, and it was somewhat more acceptable to allow themselves to go into those spaces, although I, I certainly wouldn't say that it's completely acceptable and it's completely safe for them to do it in every situation, and it's going to vary from man to man quite a bit, uh, which leads me to my second point. I was listening to you, uh, to, to you bantering with uh, your two uh, companions yeah. on the air earlier, and even though you were joking around, it does bring up an important point, which is that uh, it's a it's it's a mistake to assume that the goal is to get every man to emote at the same level in the same way in every situation. Yeah. Uh, because we have different personalities, we have different backgrounds, uh, we are at different stages in our lives, and so even though you guys were fooling around a little bit about it, it actually made a good point, which is that this is not a one size fits all situation. I guess the same is true with with women as well. We don't we don't see a need to have all women emoting uh, the same. So why on earth would we need men to? Yeah, exactly. And I can imagine that there there might be women who are on the the, the less emotive end of the scale that yep. might feel a little like it's a little oppressive for the you know, the cultural expectation for that for them to emote the way that women on the higher end of the emotive scale emote. So, yeah, it's absolutely true that these individual variations are, are equally important as one's gender. And I guess what, like when I work with uh, couples and people in communication, um, I use emotions as – it really is a sign. It's an indicator. It's a, it's a tool you can use to, to help uh, get to know them better, to understand where they are. I call it their vital signs. You can start to see because emotions are harder to to truly hide. Um, and so in a way, I guess it, it really it's it's just about trying to understand another person. But my worry or concern is, I guess, is more the cultural norms or the stereotypes of men that might either make it so they they feel like they can't share their feelings or they, um, you know, they're seen as weak if they do. Yeah, and I, I think that's an excellent point. And what it translates down to, again, is individual experience at a practical level. So, uh, you know, one of the great influencers in, in my estimation, in my own experience of how open and how available a man is going to be to express what he's truly feeling in a way that's authentic for him, which, you know, may mean crying in certain situations, is at what point during his childhood or his boyhood or his teenage years did he realize that there were all kinds of negative incentives for him to do that, and so therefore he stopped doing it? Hmm. Um, and that is one of, the, one of the biggest drivers, because so much of our behavior is based upon conditioning that we received as to you know, what gets a positive outcome and what gets a negative outcome. And certainly for men of my generation, crying in front of other people was 
after a certain age, uh, depending on family situations and so forth, it was earlier or later, was going to get you a pre- pretty negative outcome, and it could be pretty forcefully negative, uh, anything from shaming to physical violence. Uh, so, uh, you know, that is at the root of a lot of this. A lot of, I think, what men might consider to be kind of their native mode around this stuff is actually not their native mode. It was a learned uh, sort of uh, conditioned model of how they should respond and, and, and what was safe. And I I agree. And I look at um, – because there are some interesting statistics too about – like attachment disorder and uh, attachment disorders going up on the rise. Um, I've even heard statistics as high as 50, 60 percent of um, some of our millennials are, are are suffering from the ability to actually be vulnerable and connect with others. So I wonder if, if um, maybe this is actually moving less from being a male-female issue to just being – you know, uh, and the ability to truly be vulnerable with other people. Well, there's certainly a lot of I, I can I certainly can see the the viability of what you're saying, and I can certainly also look at the culture uh, and see that, for example, you know, I don't know, in the last ten or fifteen years, the term whining has become very popular. Hmm. Uh, to, you know, as a put down for anybody that's basically even expressing a mild sort of displeasure or discomfort about something. And and that certainly would be something that would cut across gender, and you know, in, in the way that I've seen it used. It's you're you're on a really I think uh, interesting. I don't know that I'd call it a crusade. I mean, it's but it's you're just trying to open up people's minds to understand what it might be to be um, a human, really first and foremost, but a man, I guess, second. What what are some of the the things that you see as you meet with uh, male men and and groups around the country? What are you seeing? What gets in the way? Uh, what else gets in the way of us understanding the heart of one another? Uh, I think that at at the root, it's fear of being shamed and rejected. Um, I, I think that, and I can't. I'm not a woman, so I can't speak to the female experience, but. As a man, and as a man who's been in a lot of men's groups with a lot of other men, uh, I think that you know the the fear of being shamed uh, for vulnerability, the fear of feeling out of control is is huge. That's a huge one for me. And you know, for a lot of men, uh, there's nothing that would feel more vulnerable and out of control hmm. than crying in front of somebody else. So I see this a lot in groups, uh, and, and it's interesting too, Matt, because. When a man does get that, that get to that point in a group, the other men get uncomfortable. <laughs> do they? they don't they yeah. don't know what to do. Even though typically these things happen in a group after some trust has been established and everybody feels like you know there's a safety uh, zone there, but at the same time, the first time uh, a man begins to cry in a group, it's there's just a palpable awkwardness in the room because even though everybody in the room is committed to being supportive, we don't know what to do. And invariably, somebody's going to jump up and try to grab the tissues, and a good facilitator will will basically motion them to sit back down. Uh, Because for a lot of men, uh, especially when this process is new and it's tentative and they're just kind of trying it out, any kind of interruption, no matter how well-intentioned, can be interpreted very easily as, okay, it's time for you to stop now. Yeah, knock that off. Yep. Isn't that interesting? Well, let me because let me ask you because you've seen the dynamic. So, 
that that guy that man might feel like he's out of control because he's emoting and and sharing his, and sharing his feelings and his stories and others may not know what to do but what i've seen a lot of times in group dynamic if you just sit through it mm-hmm. and just let it kind of happen and let it be then after you you actually realize hey i survived that and nobody died and uh it wasn't as bad as i thought it was and do they not then feel more confident to do it next time? Uh, I would say <clears throat> yes, uh, with some qualification. Uh, and I'll speak to my case in particular because I, I know my history. Um, over time, it has become easier for me, but because there was so much, uh, well, there was so much abuse associated with crying as a boy in, in the family and also in the school system. Uh, it's still difficult for me to get to it. So for me, it's been an incremental process of being able to go into that space and feeling, as you said afterwards, it's like, well, that was okay. I survived that. I didn't die. I thought I was going to, but I didn't. Uh, But it's still difficult for me to get into. So I guess my point is that you know, we have we have multiple layers and levels of conditioning here, and there's a lot of social conditioning. And I think if you're talking about a man who's primarily dealing with the social conditioning, he can probably get into that comfort zone where he can get more access to that state, where he can cry and let it out and feel safe. He can probably get there sooner than somebody like me that's got the social conditioning mm. laid on top of the family conditioning. Yeah. Yeah, we are speaking with Rick Belden, uh, who is the author of the book Iron Man Family Outing, Poems About Transition into a More Conscious Manhood. And Rick, one of the things um, I think you brought up that, that may kind of be more universal is we we think we want our spouse, maybe a, a wife may think she wants her spouse to open up. And when he does, um, a lot of times we don't know what to do with all of that emotion. Is it – I mean we, we think people need to share and like you've, you've taught us, not everybody needs to share the same way. So we probably ought not have that be the goal that they're always sharing everything. Um, but do people, even women, do they, do they really know what to do if a man really does open up? And do any of us really know what to do? I, I think in general we don't. Um, I think, uh, you know, my experience and kind of reflecting on things I've read and talking to other people is that generally people, that we're, not, we're not raised and set out into the world knowing how to respond to that sort of thing. And so, you know, one of the points I made in the, the article that you mentioned at the beginning is I think it's really important whether you're a woman or a man, and if a, especially if a man around you is crying, but a woman too, is to, before you act, look into what your motivations are. You know, check in and, and find out, am I, am I primarily motivated because I actually want to comfort this person and help them out and support them? Or is there also an aspect of, like, I am really uncomfortable with this, and I would really prefer that this be done mm-hmm. as soon as possible. Yeah. Uh, because that's another way, because men, everybody, but men who've been conditioned to shut down can detect that even if it's kind of wrapped in a layer of, of, I care about you, but if there's a feeling that this is really about making me stop, that'll shut a man down, and that'll be a real negative experience. So I think it really is, a, it's a learning curve for people, and it's, uh, it's another one of those important adult skill sets that unfortunately uh, I think most of us just uh, don't enter the world having. Mm. You, uh, you bring up in a poem that you wrote, 
Tears Never Cried. It's really, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful poem. But one of the lines is, what happens to all the tears I never cried? Where did they go? Have I transformed them into something else, absorbed them into, uh, into my body somehow? Or have I been saving them up somewhere in a secret place, unseen, unknown, deep within myself? And uh, so what have you discovered, Rick, uh, about where all those tears have gone that you've never shared or cried? Well, I can tell you that in my case, uh, unfortunately still, it tends to take a pretty uh, painful, traumatic experience to to drive me into the state where I let those out. Um, When I do let them out, uh, initially it's about whatever the thing is that's going on right now, but then that kind of that kind of uh, flood of backed up stuff comes out and I'll realize, oh, this is about something that happened 20 years ago. Oh, this is something that happened when I was a kid. Um, I'll tell you a story. I'm actually recovering from a broken back. Uh, I had 10 fractured vertebrae last year. What? And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a crazy situation. And in the course of finding out about that, I actually, when I told, uh, I had two separate male friends that I've known for one since seventh grade, once for 25 years, when I told each of them about it, I broke down and cried because it was so, the whole thing was so traumatic. And I realized this morning, Matt, it's like, wow, I had never cried in 25 years since seventh grade with either one of those guys before, ever. Hmm. What it took for me to get to those tears in that particular case and feel, I guess, desperate enough or broken enough to share that with two of my best friends in my life was a broken back. Wow. Well, and, and probably some Percocet. <laughs> Did it numb you Maybe. enough? My recollection is not clear. <laughs> yeah, you uh, can't but, remember. But the point is, that's how, that's, for yeah. in me, that's how strong that conditioning was not to show that kind of. And oh. I've been through all kinds of painful situations yeah. with them in my life, but I'd never cried before. That's what it took. You had to break your back to. Isn't that interesting? It's so symbolic, isn't it? It's like, yeah, you had to be broken to let it out. Yep. Wow. We're speaking with Rick Belden. Um, He is um, really a respected explorer and a chronicler of the psychology and inner lives of men. He has been writing for most of his life uh, and been using a creative expression, dream work, personal mythology, and listening to the body as tools for self-healing since 1989. His book, Iron Man Family Outing. Poems about transition into a more conscious manhood. Um, we're discussing it today and really discussing the ability uh, for all of us to be able to share our feelings more openly. We'll continue the journey in just a few minutes. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We're talking about emotions and uh, the tendency that a lot of us have to either think men don't have feelings or that it's not manly enough to get those feelings out. A lot of stereotypes uh, around that for men. Um, and, but, and it's, you know, it, there's a history of this and there's even a history of bullying, of oppression, of abuse where people were made fun of for having feelings or for crying and so joining us is Rick Belden, who is um, a respected explorer 
and a chronicler of the psychology and inner lives of men. He has a book, Iron Man Family Outing, poems about transition into a more conscious manhood. He sat in uh, many... Uh, a, a healing kind of group with men and been able to see how men go through it and process it. And we were just trying to learn from him. Rick, thank you again for being back with us. Yeah, Matt, I really appreciate the visit. This is great. This is really great. And I think, again, it's we, we just we need to be more open to it. Uh, we were telling some stories in the break about how one of us had a, a friend that passed away and, um, you know, uh, as as maybe eighth grade boys were called into the principal's office automatically feeling like they've done something wrong and there's a counselor there doing whatever they can to squeeze the emotion and the feelings out of us. I guess that's what we need to be careful of, right, is to assume that everyone needs to share the same way and if people aren't, uh, then something's wrong or if they share too much, something's wrong. Yeah, I would actually add in the same way at the same rate. Uh, mm. Because some people take longer uh, to get down into that space. Uh, some people access it more quickly. Uh, some people access it more dramatically. You know, some people are going to be more subtle in the way that they, uh, that they actually demonstrate and express. And some people are going to be more prone to do it privately. Uh, it, people need different levels of, of support at different times. And so that's over the years. That's one of the things I've come to argue for, you know, most consistently when it comes to to men and emotions and support is to again not try to take a one side. I feel like there's a lot of pressure in, in socially right now, uh, in at least in the media I see for for all men to be vulnerable and open up and emote in a very specific way and. Unfortunately and predictably, that is causing a backlash, uh, which is completely unproductive. And so, again, I feel like the answer is to hopefully at some point we, we reach a place where we're providing a nice wide spectrum of services and support for men so that they can be met where they are as individuals. Hmm. What is What are some of the keys that you have found – um, to create a space, a safe enough space for a man or really anyone to to be able to open up to their feelings? Well, I think that there are a couple of places where this can typically happen. Uh, I'm a big fan of men's groups uh, because uh, the experiences that I've had, the, the way that those have helped me to open up, the way that they're typically structured so that you build some trust over time. You build some rapport over time. Everybody learns together. Uh, one of the, it's a great amplifier when you're in a group of men. When another man begins to grieve or if he begins to cry or whatever emotions he's expressing very authentically, it's almost like he's working on everybody else's behalf. Hmm. Um, and a good men's group is a safe place for those sorts of things to happen. Uh, the other place, I suppose, for you know many men, mo- maybe most men, uh, is in their relationship, you know, with their partner. And, uh, you know, if the partner is a, is a woman, one of the mistakes a lot of men make, I think, is that they, they, they try to take all of it to the woman in their life. And that puts that woman in a very uh, sort of a sketchy position of high responsibility uh, that, where she may not have the skills, she may not have the, uh, the bandwidth. And so I really think it's, it's good if men can kind of spread this out 
across someone more than their partner, someone mm-hmm. more than their, their spouse. Uh, unfortunately, men's groups are kind of hard to come by in a lot of parts of the country, and, um, but that doesn't mean don't look. You know, it, it's always worthwhile to, to try to get more support and try to get more support that's kind of savvy and kind of understanding. Is that, I guess, is a men's group usually facilitated by a therapist? Does it have to have a therapist or can it just have somebody that's, you know, informed as to kind of group dynamic? I think it can be either. Uh, the majority of the ones that I've been involved with were uh, facilitated by therapists, but a uh, uh, therapist facilitation doesn't guarantee a good men's group either, unfortunately. Right. Um, so I think that I think group dynamics, as you said, and understanding and some and some uh, some practical experience with that and and some capability and skillfulness with that is probably the most important thing. Talk to us about if we if we see somebody um, maybe breaking down, sharing their feelings, and it seems kind of like the first time. It seems like something new. How do we know? how to comfort, if we should comfort, you know, whether to touch or not, whether to say something or not. How do we know how to approach it? It's a, it's a very, it can be a very delicate, artful process. Uh, I, again, I would say the, really the first thing I would recommend to people is check in with your own feelings first. Uh, because I think, I think the feelings that you're having in reaction or response will tell you a lot about what might be motivating you to, to do something. Um, so if, if you can check in with your own feelings and, and you feel clear that you're actually okay with what's happening, then you can sort of take action based on that. If you check in with your own feelings and you're extremely uncomfortable yourself, uh, if it feels threatening, if it feels scary, then I think it's good to kind of give the, give the other person space and give yourself some space so to, to, to understand what's happening with you, once you understand what's happening with you, then you can make a more clear decision as to how you're going to interact with uh, the other person, the man who's crying. I would say, in my experience, it's better to err on the side of giving more space, doing less, and being the best possible witness that you can while doing anything you can silently to let that person know, I'm here I'm not judging you, and exude as much warmth as you can uh, in a non-invasive kind of way, if that if mm-hmm. any of that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. What do you mean by be a witness? I think that's a really powerful um, concept. Well, I think in the uh, you know in the in the way that I think of it, being a witness in these kind of situations is it's sort of a um, it's it's a way to address the the fear of being alone you know, that the, that the person who's emoting has, because it's difficult to do this stuff alone. In my mind, a witness is somebody who's going to sit there attentively, supportively, in a, in a non-interfering way. Hmm. Yeah, like, and not like, not steering the process. I'm, I'm glad, because the word I was just thinking was like, not trying to engineer an outcome. Yeah, that's great. Or it, the pace. Yeah. Again, pace is so important. You really have to let these things, to the best of your ability, within your own comfort zone, let the person's process unravel, because these processes have a life of their own. And so, and they have their own pace, and they have their own kind of time span and everything. And my experience is if if you can be a good witness, as I said, and sit there supportively, attentively, in a non-interfering, non-steering way, as you said, 
the process will finish itself, and there will be a moment where it becomes clear to you. Either you'll get some eye contact or the body language will change, and then you'll know, now it's okay for me to move a little closer. Mm -hmm. As you move in a little closer, you just keep checking in. Everything you do, just keep checking in. Watch him. Watch his eyes. Watch his body language. Is he okay with what I'm doing? If not, back it up. And how powerful. The word witness is so powerful because then this person has actually done it in front of somebody, and it's been seen. And exactly. it's kind of that namaste idea that I see you. So now you're actually being seen in your real emotion, and that's when they really need to know that they're accepted, loved, and cared for. Yes. And and the one thing I would add, too, is, you know, in the witness role is, like, you may, did, may need to do some processing yourself after it's over. Yeah. Because this may have brought up some things for you that you're, you may be a little stirred up. Um, and, and so you may to need to, you may need some space, you know, yeah. in the aftermath yourself so that you can understand what was happening for you. Cause it's not just happening for him. It's happening for you and in you at the same time. Powerful, powerful stuff. Well, Rick, we appreciate you and your great work. Um, just opening our minds up to, to what is potentially, you know, such a core thing. You wonder if all these feelings get stuffed down deeper and deeper and deeper, do they eventually just have to blow up uh, and come out in another way, sometimes an uglier way? And maybe that's why we see so many extreme uh, acts out there, just people that have never been heard, their feelings have never been understood, so they act out in other ways. Rick Belden is his name. His book, Iron Man Family Outing, Poems About Transition into a More Conscious Manhood. Doing what we can, folks, to help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143. Well, if you've ever been a a parent that uh, tries to get your kids to answer you through text... You may have a new tool, folks. The The app is called Reply ASAP. And uh, what it does is as a parent, you can send your kid a text and then an alarm sounds on their screen. The app takes over your child's uh, screen and forces the teen to respond to the parent's text before they can re-engage and use their phone. So how much time do they have? Because, you know, sometimes you have legitimate purpose or reasons for not responding immediately. Sure. So how much time are these kids given to respond? I think it just keeps going off. The alarm keeps sounding. And you've got to address the phone. Ah, and it I, might just be – you might have to just text back, hold on, I'm talking to my girlfriend. I don't think this is a great way to improve your relationship with your kids. It's not, except if you haven't had a teenager yet, a lot of times they just don't answer you. So you're like, when are you going to be home? Nothing. Right, and then but, you ask them, so what are you doing? See, you're thinking as an adult who's not answering because you're in an important meeting – But they're a 15-year-old kid. Oh, they have nothing to do. They've got nothing going on. And they they get every other text. Oh, yeah. They're texting with all their friends. They just have reprioritized you. So now this just moves you to the top of the list. And they better answer or they can't do anything else on their phone. (laughs) Yeah, I think it's a pretty cool idea. It will, like you said, it's going to tick some people off. Uh, Yeah. But that's just parenting, parenting 101. That's hmm. what we try to do here on the show, give you the tools and the keys, the, the things you need to make it work. The app is called Reply ASAP, and uh, 
It all started with a dad tired of his son that wasn't responding. Hmm. Interesting innovations. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. And we're at it again, folks. Another hour of uh, fun and enlightenment right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Today we'll be talking about whether you should exercise on an empty stomach if you want to lose weight or should you... Put some uh, calories in your gut to uh, give you some more drive and energy. Hmm. Mm, Ron Hager will be here to walk us through. I just want to talk about the food. Now, by the as way, as we get the food, let's do a quick update of your diet. You are on week number three, I believe. Supposed to lose eight point something pounds. So I've got about a week. One there's week a, left. There's a forty-eight hour leeway period, yeah. so that goes beyond the deadline. So, uh, yeah, I am hopeful. How are we doing? I'm close. close. I'm super close. Close like, a, like five pounds, close like one pound, close like five ounces. No, 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 no. Um, I'm, I'm within a pound and a half, I think. Oh, my heavens. Okay. So, so I might need to get on the, the elliptical a few times this last week. Yeah. I might need to just go without a meal. Can, can we coach you? Do you want some help? From Terry and I on... Can I just wait until Ron Hager shows up and ask him? Well, yeah, you could wait for the guy that knows or... (laughs) We have ideas. We have ideas. I mean, when I was in high school, kids on the wrestling team could lose three or four pounds in a day. Oh, yeah. I'm hoping... You know, in the first... What? In the first week? In the first two weeks, I lost like six and a half, seven pounds. That was And then it really came to a screeching halt. Yeah. What did that sound like, by the way? Ouch. Yeah. Screeching halt. Hey, does it involve uh, the new M&Ms that Terry's going to talk about? You See, that's the problem. You'll never be able to have those M&Ms. Ever again? Ever again. A taste is fine. No. Yes. No. no. You can't have just one M&M. If I can't have things in my life like the M&Ms... And the nachos from time to time. Yeah. Then what? what's the point of all this? The point is misery. <laughs> the point is to suffer and gain experience of how to suffer. All th- of that. I think we have a sound for that, too. <laughs> Are you done? Are you done with that? Yeah, well, just know we're here for you. We are here to support you. Uh, we won't. We we will love you and receive you no matter what your weight. I will say this. Mm-hmm. When I've weighed myself in the morning, which is typically when people weigh or they're at their lowest weight. Yeah. Uh, I believe I was the lowest this morning that I've ever been. Ever in your life? No, no, no. Not ever. But since I started this. I was going to say you were a huge baby. I was a 10-pound baby. Ten pounds, four ounces. I wouldn't brag about that. Your poor mother. 
I was also the last child. You were the favorite child then. Yeah. Because you were yeah, like, that's right. <sighs> done. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations to you. That, you've, you've done great. And uh, next week we will update everybody to see if he gets his money back. You're in an investment pool where you invest money, $30 in. If you lose your weight, you might get some money back. You also may not. No, 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 no. There's, there's – I mean I, you can figure out the math. If everybody gets it, then I probably will get 25 of the $35 back. So you only paid $5 to lose eight of your own pounds. And I would pay – I would gladly pay money to lose weight. See, that's great. Are you going to do it again, do you sense? I Or do you dollar? I th- I thought about doing it, but since the weight loss has really been slowing yeah. down, it's made me think twice about joining mm-hmm. again because I basically have to lose another I, eight pounds. I think you ought to do it again, but this time you ought to do it because you haven't been exercising yet. So just, this time do it again. With the exercise. Another eight pounds, but add exercise. Nachos? Uh, and then the next time, do it again, but you'll have exercise, diet, and then add uh, saran wrap um, mm. and just wear saran wrap all day. Okay. And it'll, you'll just have fluids pooling. It's at like your a feet. portable sauna. You'll totally. be fine. Fantastic stuff. And remember, I'm a doctor. Drink so plenty I know of water. Things. All of that straight ahead. We will get to that fun. Plus, we'll uh, check in with our health evangelist, Ron Hager, and, and uh, see what is the key to uh, the secret to uh, weight loss empty stomach or a full stomach? I've always found it really hard to run with a, with a huge steak on board. <laughs> really? <laughs> I. Uh, when I eat a steak, I usually don't run after. But um, I, I, you know, it helps me drive and fall asleep. You get a little finger workout as you work that toothpick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> clickety, clickety, click. We'll get to that. Plus, our good brethren from BYU Sports Nation. We'll check in with them to see what's coming up on their show at the end of the day or at the end of our day. Uh, the show will be up at noon uh, Eastern time. We're also going to find out what's going on with the BYU game. Apparently, it's been relocated. BYU's playing LSU and is, away from a neutral site to the New Orleans Superdome. Isn't it just being put back in the path of the storm, apparently? Yeah. Isn't the storm going right. to Louisiana? Mm-hmm. No, BYU's going to so Louisiana. Now is the, yeah, it, by that, will we be canceling it no. again and moving it to Florida, Tallahassee? It's an indoor game, uh, right? Yeah. So there's no cancellation because of the weather. The Superdome in New Orleans has a has a really interesting a, hurricane history. It so, does. Oh, this it does. is where everybody from Katrina yeah. was housed Temporarily, well, yeah, it was yeah. the it was the dome or Katrina know, dome, they corralled or shoved away and forgotten yeah, about, forgotten. depending oh, on your narrative. Yeah, <laughs> just depends which book you're reading, uh, which hymnal you're singing from. We've got we'll cover all that plus our hero story, all of that straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, educate us. What's going on? Thousands of of evacuees have streamed by the busloads into Houston's George R. Brown Convention Center, their largest shelter serving victims of Harvey. The shelter originally said it could take up to five thousand, but it's currently over capacity at six thousand. They have a sign-in list. It has 8,000 names on it. They're saying they're going to take every person they possibly can squeeze wow. in there. Yeah. The center are looking for more volunteers, especially mental health specialists, nurses, and social workers. One volunteer said he has been working since the shelter opened. He said he hasn't stopped to sleep, instead keeps checking people in and offering them towels. A long line of cars is formed outside the convention center where people are coming to deliver supplies and cheer up the evacuees. One man delivered supplies dressed up in a full costume as Batman. And his four-year-old son joined him dressed up as Little Batman. The young and old stopped and smiled at the duo who brought clothes and activity packs 
to the children at the convention center. The people of Houston need a hero, Batman told ABC. It was my idea, little Batman said. Ah, so, There you go. That's there's, a good see. See, by the way, story. that's a feel-good story. Doesn't your heart it felt, burn inside it a little felt warm? weird reading it. And, yeah. Isn't that beautiful? So by the way, this, remember with Katrina, so many people moved away from the area and never came back. Yeah. So if this gets bad enough, one of the fears is, are people going to come back to Houston or are they just going to move on and start a new life? Go somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, in other news, two people were killed, four others injured Monday afternoon in a shooting at a Clovis Charter Public Library in Clovis, New Mexico. Clovis City Manager Tom Phelps said the shooter was arrested after he surrendered peacefully. Uh, the shooting took place shortly before 4 p.m. local time. Police surrounded the library for more than an hour. Phelps said he does not know the motive and an investigation is underway. Apparently the guy walked in the door and started shooting his gun into the air. Ah. Wow. And he shot two people and injured four others. So, I mean, it's just kind of a crazy thing at a public library. Pittsburgh International Airport would be the first major U.S. airport to allow public access to gates since admittance to terminals were restricted in the aftermath of 9-11. The airport will begin to allow non-ticketed visitors to enter previously passenger-exclusive zones starting September 5th. The new Transportation Security Administration pilot program called My Pit Pass will will give the public access to shops, dining, and the ability to walk their loved ones to the gates Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Wow. The security procedures for My Pit Pass holders will be the same as if they were ticketed passengers, according to the TSA. Really? So you have to pay for it. Hold it. I'm not sure. They didn't say you had to pay. They said it will be issued, but I'm not sure if that... I don't want more people there. It was nice just to sort of dump off the people who aren't flying and just go to your gate. Come on. Yeah. That means more people at security check-ins. Ah! More people in line at the Cinnabon. Mm. Oh, brother. That's going to make the Cinnabon wait. Cinnabon wait. Like hours. Passengers will have first priority. Sure. Non-passengers will wait because, you know, people have to make their, their flights. You still have to go through all the TSA screening and all that kind of stuff. But huh. yeah, Wow. Okay. We'll see how this works. Yeah. Uh, food deliveries to the home typically end with someone knocking on your door to hand over f- a food order. But Domino's would like to remove that last part of the delivery process and instead require customers to walk over to the delivery car to collect their own pizza. Mm, not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> really? As Reuters reports, in order to make it happen, Domino's is teaming up with Ford to carry out self-driving pizza delivery experiment. The test will be held in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and will use Ford's Fusion hybrid vehicles for delivery. Of course, drivers will still be in the Fusion for these tests, but the cars will be driving themselves. Customers will be able to track exactly where their pizza is as the journey happens before informing, uh, being informed via text message that their food is outside and ready to collect. Well, See, at that point, then they don't get a tip because then you're just paying for their gas money and their employer should be paying for their gas money. Yeah. And they didn't even walk up your stairs. Right. So as it says here, there's also a there's a question on the process of collecting the pizza from the car. How will that happen? All the, and some of the logistics. But it says the question mark overall is where the customers will be accepting of this go get your own pizza from the car delivery concept. Look, I've still got a pizza to eat. So for some I reason, I can't go pick it up. For some, it'll be a short walk to their from their front door. But what if you're in an apartment on an upper floor? What if it's raining? There are so many factors that will make delivery to your door by a person preferable. Maybe Domino's will eventually solve that with a robot in the car to walk up to your door. Yeah, so you can get shredded by a... As our 
as our, as our next guest, Dr. Ron Hager, just came in, um, people are trying to avoid the five steps to the car from the exactly. front doorstep. <laughs> you got to earn that tip. You I, know? You keep going back to the tip. Well, what if about the pizza? You're going to have to exert energy to yeah. eat your pizza. That's it's like the, when you go to a fast casual restaurant and you fast order it. casual. The, yes, you order at the counter. <laughs> yeah. And they have that iPad and they say, how much do you want to leave for a tip? Uh, zero. Zero. Yeah, you did very little for me. Right. Yeah, no, but they have to hand you the food. Well, it's fine. You just paid for it. Well, but do you know what's in it? <laughs> well, they didn't know if you were giving tip them a tip them. or not. Give them a tip. They've got your food. All right. See, the pizza's different because they don't know if you're going to tip yet when it's out warming in the car. Then you go get your pizza box. Then you reach your hand you in your pocket and pretend like you're yeah. going to – and then just take off running. Yeah. Or t- I might take two or three pizzas. In other <laughs> very good but not necessarily very good for you food news. Okay. Hold on. Uh, Did you do this for Ron Hager? Oh, of course. It's, it's he loves it when him. we bring in new food ideas. Oreo released a seemingly endless list of limited edition flavors last year, each one wackier than the last. Yeah. I don't know if I'd call them wacky. Oreo. Yeah, they're there. Uh, this year they came up with a contest to, to come up with uh, asking you know fans to come up with a new flavor. Yeah. And it's a $50,000 prize for anyone who can guess the new flavor. It's called Mystery Oreos. Oh, boy. So you open the package, you have to taste it, and then respond, and there's a $50,000 prize if you can guess the flavor. Is it Soylent Green? It doesn't say. It's a question mark. <laughs> so look for those on the junk food aisle. Well, I, mean, I, I mean the cookie aisle. Like, so what is it? We need to know what it is. We can't leave it hanging. It's a mystery it's a contest. No, Send Palakiko to the store. We'll get one and try them out. It also does not say when they'll be available. Oh. So, Come on, so Oreo. So that's also a mystery. Yeah, it'll be a, a mystery. It says uh, Oreo did not immediately respond to a request for more information about when soonish might actually be because apparently they said it'll be in the stores. But soon-ish. what if it's like hmm. eggplant? Could be. Oreo. Oh, this Oreo tastes horrible. And finally, we we talked about this off the air, mm-hmm. but uh, M and M's. Yeah. Introducing cookies and scream <gasps> flavored M&Ms for your Halloween cookies celebration. and scream. So it's cookies and cream, but it's scary. They actually made the – if you look real close, the candies are actually kind of speckled. Like, yeah. You know, somehow so, that's scary. But what's the scary part? The scary part should be like a spider in every 12th M&M. No, this, this, this scary part is the M&M looks afraid on the packaging. That's See, the scary part. You know what? But that means M&Ms don't make friends. So it's from the packaging. It appears the new item is Red's Nightmare, but the fact that Red is the red M&M, the face yeah. that walks yeah. around. Uh, but the fact is the, it features dark and white chocolate means it could be our new delight. Mm. So dark and white chocolate cookies and cream might be a good flavor. Yeah. Red's Nightmare is my dream come true. Totally. Not so scary, is it? You know who it's scary for is Ron Hager. He's like, oh, great, another way to kill people. Not that they kill people, but eating because now you'll eat 20 bags of those. You've already told me you're going to buy like a dozen bags and then take them back if they're not good. If they're good, we can store them. For what? Food storage? Store them, you know. Like for a... In my tummy. Disaster? Um, And then if they're horrible, I'll just return them for money. Wow. Do you think like in the middle of the hurricane, handing out M&Ms, I guess, would be good? But wouldn't it be better to hand out something healthy? Wait, why are we bringing that into this? I'm just talking about... You're going to have dozens and dozens of bags of cookies and scream. Well, yeah. When I return the other bags, I can donate that money. 
you're on a diet. Do you not remember that? I wouldn't call it a diet. You, I'm calling it a new way of life. That lasts for another week? No, that's why I'm going to Will join another forever? game. That's good. And keep it going. My mind, I mean, my mindset is is totally changing. No, totally. Like I've got a guy's weekend, brother's weekend coming up next month. I'm already starting to think about, okay, I'll indulge in this Mm -hmm. at the Dodger game, but I won't indulge in this. Like you'll have the chips and the the hot dog, but you won't consume any ice cream. Yeah. Okay. See, I'm planning ahead. That's what it's all about. You know what? It's not. You're still going to die. I'm going to miss you. Ron Hager's up next. Thanks for sharing your emotions, by the way. Thank you. Well, we've been learning about the importance of sharing emotions. Uh, Our health evangelist, Dr. Ron, will be with us uh, teaching us why exercising on an empty stomach is the secret to weight loss or or maybe he'll clarify. Maybe the secret is are some M&Ms. I doubt it. Cookies and scream. We'll continue the journey helping you live longer up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. I'm ready for a miracle, and who better to bring us the miracle than Dr. Ron Hager? Ron is an associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences at BYU and uh, is an expert in uh, chronic disease prevention. He is our health evangelist. He's here to help us see the light and, uh, and order light. See, same word. I play on words there. Light and light. It's good to be here. Good to have you, Ron. Now, you heard that uh, Jeffrey Liam Simpson is um, in a contest. Yeah. It's a diet kind of contest, but it's not a diet because he's not on a diet. He's on a life change. And he's spent $30. He's lost. He needs to lose about eight and a half pounds. He's lost about seven and a half pounds-ish. And he's got another pound and about a week to go. So we like to – we've been talking a lot about the healthy way to diet. Okay. Uh, I was telling him he should just saran wrap up and go. then just go running. Just go to the bathroom before you weigh yourself. I mean, that's, that's you, so true. You can get rid of 16 ounces right there. Really? Uh, yeah, it might work. It might work. You, you know, the whole idea of going on a diet sort of implies that at some point you're going to go off the diet, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah. yeah his, mean, his is a life – he's going on a life change. Yeah. So his is, his is what sometimes I've called a non-diet diet. It's <laughs> <laughs> a non-diet diet. And his is actually more gambling. Yeah, yeah, because he's gambling against his own ability to lose weight, which is amazing, and he will actually win money back. And, and, and internal, in, or because that's how it motivates him. It's, ex- it's external incentives yeah. can, can definitely be useful in getting a person going totally in changing a behavior. The one of the serious concerns, though, is typically you're not in a contest for the rest of your life. Oh, but he is. So what happens when the external incentive is gone? So at some point you have to internalize it. You got to be motivated yeah, internally. True. You know, but anyway, he's he's racing death. Yeah, yeah. It's a total contest for life. Yeah. Um, Talk about because there's a lot of uh, you know little supposed tricks of the trade. Should I exercise on a full stomach, empty stomach? What are the real principles behind? Well, you probably you've probably heard growing up that if you're going to go swimming, you don't eat right before you go swimming. Right. (laughs) You'll get cramps. Yeah, you'll get cramps, and then of course you know cramps. In water, you know, can can be problematic. Then you're dead. Sure, um, but but there is, I mean, people are always uh, 
trying to figure out what's going to work best, uh, you know, coaches for their athletes, people for weight loss, whatever it is. Um, and so there, there's this article that was um, uh, published online in The Telegraph, which is a publication that comes out of the UK, um, out of Britain. And it was titled, Why Exercising on an Empty Stomach is the Secret to Weight Loss. Yeah, it's the secret. Yeah, and, and the article starts out by saying, you may think you need food to fuel your workouts, but you are wrong. Huh. Yeah, isn't that interesting? I, um, well, like, I guess because we're storing energy? Well. Is that there? Well, they, the, the, the author goes on to explain a few different things. But uh, after I read that first statement, I thought, you know, I'm going to go check out the comments because this was kind of an online mm-hmm. article, sort of a, and, blo- and a blog. And the Telegraph sort of is like not known for its – it's not the New York Times. Yeah, it's a little more sensational, yeah. I suppose. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I went to the comments and it was interesting because you could tell that a lot of the comments were coming out of the UK too because not all, but many of the comments were things like, you know, this article is a load of total rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right. You don't hear that in the United States. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds kind of like the UK a little bit. Anyway, but there were also some comments that were supportive. But but the basic, I guess, information or message that the author was trying to deliver is that uh, there, there are – he he was saying that there are basically two states a person can be in, a fed state or a fasted state. Hmm. And the fed state comes from the time you eat until about four or six hours after. So that that's the fed state. After six hours, you're considered to be in a fasted state, and that's because the body has processed and digested and absorbed uh, the food that you've eaten. And and he suggests that in a fasted state, you 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 go to your fat stores. You begin to mobilize fat, uh, fatty acids that can be processed in the liver and, and, and create something called a ketone or a ketone body. Sometimes those words are used interchangeably. They're not exactly the same, but, but we can just say, you know, ketones. And those ketones can be used for energy. Now, if the body produces too many ketones, because the, the ketones are, the, the, the ketones are also, um, I guess, sort of handled uh, it, 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 when there's an excess in the kidneys. And so you can actually measure your ketone levels with, for example, like a urine sample mm. or or a blood sample. The urine sample is probably easier. But the idea is that um, in a fasted state, you, you've depleted your carbohydrate stores and your body still needs energy. And whether you're exercising or not, your body still needs energy, and so it can begin to mobilize the fat stores. Hmm. And uh, and you can create a what, what's called a nutritional ketosis or a dietary uh, ketosis on what's called a ketogenic diet. So you can actually modify your dietary intake in order to create um, this burning burning of fat, yeah. you know, for energy more than carbohydrate. Hmm. And is that like a protein diet kind well, of? Well, it, it's actually, I would say, kind of moderate in, huh. in protein. It's actually high in fat. Oh, and, really? And, and very low in carbohydrate. Like so, high in healthy fat. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's kind of this, this term you've heard, you know, the low-carb, high-fat diet or mm-hmm. low-carb, high-fat, high-protein diet. You don't hear high-fat generally being associated with anything to do with your health because there's such a, uh, a negative – perception of yeah. fat. For the last 40 years, we've kind of been on a, a low-fat kind of a craze, I would say. So the idea of to say, 
you know, you got to eat more fat may not go over too well. So I've often heard it, you know, as low carbohydrate, uh, high protein or something mm. like that, because oftentimes proteins and fats come together. Well, and it seems like there's one thing to, when I hear fat, like eat your gristle on <laughs> yeah, that steak, yeah, yeah. you got to eat the fat because that's where all the flavor is. Yeah. But that's not the fat we're, we're trying to eat. We're trying no. to eat, you no. know, yeah. high fat. Yeah. H- higher fat, but more from oh, healthy fats, yeah. but, but not entirely. Um, you know, the, the, the types of foods that are considered you know, staples of a ketogenic diet, you know, could be things like fish mm-hmm. that that has high fat content, the fish oils, but also things like butter and cheese hmm. or e- or even heavy cream. Really? Yeah. 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 W- would be staples of a ketogenic diet, but also healthy oils, nuts and seeds, yeah. which, which can have high healthy oil content uh, as well as uh, protein. Uh, but you think about these these kinds of dietary approaches and if you go back, I guess – there probably are some people or groups or civilizations of people even today that I would say live on a ketogenic diet. But traditionally, if you look, I guess, sort of uh, historically, there are aboriginal societies. Ab- mm. You know, a, an aborigine is just a person who hasn't really been affected by civilization or colonization or something like that. So it it doesn't just necessarily mean, you know, people, you know, indigenous people of Australia. You can have aborigines. In fact, uh, the Inuit Mm-hmm. Uh, Eskimo yeah. populations, very very high fat diets in their in their traditional diets. Obviously, no. Now they have, might have a McDonald's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now, obviously, contemporary changes have occurred. But if you look at the traditional diet of the Inuit, very low carbohydrate, uh, moderate, you know, to high protein and very high fat. Hmm. You know, there's not a lot of agriculture north of the Arctic Circle. And I don't mean Arctic Circle, the restaurant. I mean Arctic, Arctic yeah. Circle, the, 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 the latitude. Um, so uh, you look at those people and other groups of people like that have been studied in, in Africa, in South America, in Australia. And those people have – but you know, by all standards, they're lean. They're, yeah. they're lean people. They're fit and healthy. And they don't suffer from any of what you might call the diseases of civilization. You know, if, 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 if they survive childhood into adulthood, they don't, they don't get obese. They don't get diabetes. They don't die of heart attacks. They don't have high blood pressure, all of those kinds of things. So, you know, you, but you have to kind of be careful. You can't just say, I'm going to live like the Esk- or I'm going to eat like the Eskimos unless you want to live like the Eskimos. Now, they're also very active. They were a hunting type of people. And their daily routine required a lot of oh, physical activity, yeah. and and they did this on a on a ketogenic diet. You know what you would call a ketogenic diet today. And so, from a performance perspective, athletes are now looking at this. Hmm. Um, now, if, if you're kind of a short burst of energy, speed endurance type athlete, it takes time to mobilize fat. And if you're running a sprint, you don't have time yeah. to do that. So you still need carbohydrate. So it's not about – and I've always tried to you know, be cautious about this and tell people to be cautious about this. When somebody's trying to tell you to eliminate an entire macronutrient category from your diet, like carbohydrate, because there are bad kinds of carbohydrates or good kinds of carbohydrates. In fact, on a ketogenic diet, uh, you still need some carbohydrate. Uh, and so the idea is to go for low-carbohydrate options primarily in vegetables. Hmm. So things like broccoli, uh, bell peppers, uh, asparagus, these are all great options for carbohydrates. 
And and you also get fiber and you get other phytonutrients or phytochemicals in there, including certain minerals. One of the downsides of this ketogenic approach, high fat, low carbohydrate, is that you may need a supplement where you actually need some electrolytes in your mm-hmm. diet, some salt, some magnesium, some potassium. Because if you're not, you know, if you're just eating animal products, especially high fat, you may you may be running low on those. But if you're eating some vegetables that that fit into a ketogenic pattern, you may be able to get those minerals and not need the supplement. It really, it's so complicated, which again, I guess is why we really need to pay someone to give us the diet because I don't know how to do it. We're speaking with Dr. Ron Hager. He's trying to give us the uh, the scoop on it and we'll continue to do so. Uh, we will uh, we'll continue this journey in, in just a minute. And uh, when we come back, we're going to find out too, does, you know, does it matter if, if your stomach is empty, if you've been eating kind of a, a balanced diet or uh, even doing the ketogenic diet, what about exercising on an empty stomach? Does that do anything for you? Um, we'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. More with the Health Evangelist up next. Yes, the health evangelist is uh, on board with us today. Ron Hager joins us. Ron is a professor here at Brigham Young University, associate professor of exercise sciences in the College of Life Sciences. Today we're talking about the ketogenic diet and really uh, some of the tricks to, I guess, if there are tricks, maybe they're just old ways of living, Maybe to to living a healthier life. And uh, Ron, I wanted to talk to you about... um, Again, we've been on a low-fat diet approach for about the last 30, 40 years, you said. Yeah. And yet we are getting – we're just gaining weight like crazy. Yeah. So something's not well, working. Well, one of, the, one of the things that researchers are finding is that on this kind of a refined dietary approach that so many people are on, especially with carbohydrates. Now, again, all carbohydrates aren't the same, but we do consume a lot of refined carbohydrates and a lot of other – refined and processed type foods. But on our current diet, what researchers have, have found is that it, it, it creates uh, a need for a lot of insulin. And so we're producing in our bodies more insulin uh, to, to regulate our blood sugar because our blood sugar goes up on the typical diet. And, um, and, and we're becoming less sensitive to insulin. So our insulin sensitivity is going down which means the body needs to produce more. So it's kind of this vicious cycle. And insulin insensitivity uh, predisposes us for type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. in, and insulin in, in larger amounts than, than we would typically need also creates inflammation in our body. It's a source of inflammation. And inflammation is the precursor for many of the you know, diseases that we've talked about on the show, heart disease, uh, stroke, um, even some cancers. So, you know, the, the, the research is starting to indicate that maybe there's some value in a ketogenic diet. In one study, they found that insulin sensitivity improved by 75% wow. for people on a ketogenic diet. Really? Yeah. And that, and that blood insulin actually went down. Yeah. Because if you're more sensitive to it, then you need less of it. But isn't the isn't the belief that yeah? But if you just have everybody eating all the protein and fats that they want, they're just going to explode. That that's kind of what you would think because they're 
There are nine calories per gram in fat. It's so dense. Four in protein and carbohydrate per gram. So it's it's very calorically dense. You're right. But there's also been some really good studies to to show that in free living conditions. Now they they've done controlled studies where, for example, people get you know the same amount of total energy on a ketogenic diet, and I guess you know maybe a higher carbohydrate diet, but. But, you know, it's hard to translate what happens in a lab setting into the real world. Mm -hmm. So some studies have actually been done in free living, what they call free living conditions. And people on a ketogenic diet, and and free living means you can eat as much as you want. What what they found in some studies is that people on a ketogenic diet are actually consuming fewer overall calories. Yeah. So even though they're eating more calorically dense food, total calorie intake is actually very close to the same or even less – than people on a higher carbohydrate yeah. diet because the, the types of foods you eat on a ketogenic diet tend to be more filling, more satisfying, so you don't eat as much of it. Boy, that yeah. was my Sunday because we didn't have very much, very many uh, – we didn't have proteins. We didn't have as many fats in the house as we more, might normally have. So I just was carb loading all day, <laughs> back and forth and back and forth. And it's – yeah, you there's something – yeah. So you, it's almost like you, you can't stop eating carbohydrates. You can't satisfy. And, and to be honest – there's some evidence of this, but this is, I guess, more of my opinion based on the evidence. You know, in terms of food manufacturing, it, there's no question that that food manufacturing, food scientists who mostly are interested in making as much money as they can from food sales, all, they know that if you can create a highly palatable food for as cheaply as you can, that it has the potential to be addictive mm-hmm. or at least somewhat addictive where people can't stop eating it. You just need more. Yeah. You need more. Now, 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 I just want to mention real quick back to this idea of is exercise on empty, empty stomach yeah. the secret to weight loss. Now, there may be some, some credibility in that statement. But let me just mention, too, a 2014 study published in the Journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition where researchers concluded that body composition changes. Now, this isn't just weight, but this is body composition, how much fat yeah. uh, is, is changing uh, over time with aerobic exercise. So, uh, and this was in conjunction with a hypocaloric diet, meaning fewer calories than the person needs. So it's a, it's a calorie-restricted program designed for weight loss. Uh, but whether the person was fed or fasted, prior to exercise did not make a difference. It didn't matter, huh? It didn't matter. So they, they lost basically the same amount of, of, of weight in terms of fat weight lost uh, through, through body composition analysis. So the question then is what, what do you make of all this? Right. You know, because the person is wondering, uh, should I do this? Should I not do this? When it comes to reducing risk of many of the common chronic diseases, a ketogenic diet is well supported in the scientific literature uh, the benefits are, are have have been established uh, in the science in the research. Um, at, it, and, and when you're on a ketogenic diet, it, it can take time for your body to adjust. Mm. So you probably this is probably something you just want to say. I'm going to make this massive, drastic change and jump in. Uh, sometimes people experience nausea, headaches, weakness, fatigue, mm. these kinds of things. So if a person does want to try it, I recommend you know doing some research, looking into it and uh, trying to figure it out. But when it comes to obesity and the associated risk for type 2 diabetes, this has become a, an international, a worldwide threat to our health. It's probably the biggest threat to our health of anything out there. 
maybe next to smoking. You know, you know, really, smoking yeah. or tobacco use, yeah. you know, is, is probably even more so. But 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 in other words, it's a big deal. I mentioned that in one study in Annals of Internal Medicine, they saw a 75% increase in insulin sensitivity on a ketogenic diet, which is a good thing because yeah. that reduces your risk of type 2 diabetes. In another study, uh, 7 of 21 participants were able to completely go off their diabetic medication. Wow. By Simply by switching Huge. to a ketogenic diet. A diet. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And and it does – it has been shown uh, when a when a person uses – ketones for energy, uh, you know, a lot of people think, well, the only thing the body can use is glucose. But the, the body can use ketones for energy in, in muscle, like the heart muscle, also in uh, the brain. Yeah. And so uh, ketogenic diets are being used to treat people with epilepsy, hmm. Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, uh, and, it, and it's been shown to actually improve cognitive functioning as so we, well. we may be on to something here, Dr. Yeah. Ron. Yeah. The ketogenic diet. Um, and again, what, what would be the best way to, to start uh, the approach of a ketogenic diet? I guess talk to your doctor, but then what? Yeah, you could talk to your doctor. I, I mean, I don't know if you need to do that. It, it's, it, I mean, it's your life. You know, it's a grand experiment. Yeah. You're trying to figure out what works best for you. And as, I, as I've always said, there is no one size fits all. But I would say some tips would be to reduce your carbohydrates. Um, typical ketogenic diet. Uh, guidelines would suggest no more than about 30 to 50 grams of carbohydrate per day. So you may need to do, you know, some calorie counting mm. a little bit when you get started. Um, go for the ketogenic staples and look for, you know, less processed foods, of course, uh, but meat, cheese, whole eggs, nuts, oils, healthy oils, uh, coconut oil, uh, medium chain triglycerides, uh, avocados have, have been promoted in terms of ketogenic diets, mm. uh, oily fish. But they're also vegetables. So realizing that fat is a calorically dense macronutrient, uh, you can you know, also incorporate low-carbohydrate types of vegetables. These are types of vegetables that don't cause an insulin response, uh, at, at least a dramatic insulin response. Um, so things like uh, bell peppers, broccoli, asparagus, mm. I, I mentioned zucchini. Yeah. These are all what would be considered low-carbohydrate type of options. Uh, but you can also be creative. There are recipes out there for ketogenic pasta, ketogenic bread, muffins, wow. even brownies. Oh. Um, but but in, in the end, the last thing I just want to say is that yeah. uh, consistency is the key, right? So go slow, make small manageable changes, realizing that you know your genetic makeup, your personality, your tastes, all of these things need to be addressed as you try and figure out what works best for yeah. you. Yeah, and learn. Remember, it's your body, it's your life. Good stuff, Dr. Ron Hager, the health evangelist. Uh, boy, interesting insights. Ketogenic diet. I think I'm going to look more into it now. I've heard about it, but you know, then you'd have to do it. Yeesh. We'll take a break. Come back. Visit our good brother and at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. Yes, it is that time, my friends, to head to our good friends at uh, BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem, and find out uh, what's going on in their neck of the woods. Hello, gentlemen. Jambalaya. <laughs> BYU and LSU in New Orleans, baby. I know. What do you think of that? That doesn't seem like a neutral location. Well, it's it's all good. Houston is Vegas to BYU. A couple of things LSU. there, okay? There are more LSU alumni in Houston than in the entire state of Louisiana. <laughs> okay. 
That explains it. It would have been a home game either either way. way. They should have gone to Vegas. Too far west. SEC teams dictate the terms. Yeah, but it's Vegas. Uh, Maybe someday. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, boys. Maybe someday. Okay, so yeah, it would have been a home game either way. The unfortunate part is there is weather and serious concern in New Orleans right now. Right. And I brought that up yesterday. Why... What if BYU shows up Thursday and there are real issues with this? I mean, right. I'm not saying this game's going to be canceled, but what if it's crazy Thursday? So, of all the places to relocate, I thought New Orleans was the least likely, given uh, the infrastructure and the trouble that they're having right now, tornado warnings, flash flood warnings. They're going to get a decent amount of rain. I know the game is in a dome, yeah, but obviously there's concern about the people and the surrounding area. First, mm-hmm. that's why the game was moved in the first place. They'll right. be able to set up the game and broadcast the game. I am wondering how much it will affect attendance at the game. If yeah. things it'll be dry inside, we lay out. Well, yeah, it'll be dry inside, but can people get to the stadium? Yeah. Well, it, there's always a boat. You know, take the boat. Well, you bring up a good point. <laughs> BYU all padded up coming in from the shore <laughs> on a boat. <laughs> Like George Hopefully Washington. On one of those swamp river boats. <laughs> yeah. Big fan so boats. Kalani like George Washington. <laughs> How cool would that, that would look? Amazing. So but we, we didn't get to talk yesterday. Uh, what do you I, – I want your take on McGregor and uh, and what's his bucket? Entertaining fight. That was Two guys got rich. The end. The end. I saw a funny picture. It was a picture of Ewan McGregor in the rain and it said McGregor <laughs> versus May weather. Ah. Uh. <laughs> It was awesome. <laughs> it's, it's it's funny how much the how much the stories have moved on. So yeah. yesterday we didn't even really talk about Portland State a ton. It was like, where's this game going to be played? And here we are today. We're talking about New Orleans, New Orleans, or New Orleans, depending on if you're New from Orleans. the Caribbean or yeah. the Caribbean. And if you like potatoes or no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> potatoes. Yeah. But, what? I love so meat potatoes. The, the story is kind of moving now to, okay, BYU is playing a football game against LSU. Uh, but we are thinking about Houston still. We're going to have LS, um, LJ Rose, who is from Houston, played at Houston, played at BYU last year on the men's basketball team. He started GoFundMe with some of his uh, you know, friends, B- BYU coaches and players, we're going to talk to him about what he's doing in Houston, trying to help some people out as well. Cool. See, you guys, you're just good. You're good-hearted. Oh, thank you. Hey, what did you feel? How did you guys feel about the uh, Portland game overall? We haven't talked about that on my show. I mean, I was a little surprised that we weren't, you know, getting the offense flying. Well, Kalani Satake said he had to remind his team in the locker room that they won the game. Oh, really? Yeah. They were down. Hmm. Yeah. The thing is, offensively, it's yeah. done with. BYU didn't play well offensively. The coaches know it. They get to review the film. But fortunately for BYU, they won the game and get to learn after a disappointing win. Right. It was a disappointing win because the offense wasn't as crisp. Like, penalties were the main contributor to that, and we've discussed that. So hopefully BYU's a little cleaner. You're still going to have penalties. It just it happens. Some of the most aggressive teams in college football and the good teams have penalties. Like, if you had no penalties, I would question your aggression. I'll be honest. Really, no. we're overlooking the fact that Jerem put the 17-plus curse on BYU. I actually did. I said BYU by 17-plus, uh, which should have happened. It's ridiculous Jerem. not to beat a lowly FCS team Come by 17-plus. But it was a 14-point game, so people said, What? 17-plus? <laughs> 
So I should throw that out this week. Reverse curse. Yeah. LSU 17 LSU plus. by 17 plus in an attempt to keep it within 17. Absolutely. Because the line is 13 and a half. Now that was in Houston. I don't know if that line moves. Because it's gone up. Two? 14. Ooh. A half a point. Half a point. Well, guys, it's going to be great, as always. It's a killer show. BYU Sports Nation is the name of it, and it is in about five minutes away, four and a half minutes away from right now, so you don't even have to move. Just sit where you are. Don't move. And you'll get to uh, just bask in the knowledge of Spencer and Jerem and have a good time while you're doing it. Uh, As we wrap up, you know, we always like to – kind of review the day. One thing that we did learn, uh, if you want, you can you can now share your feelings, guys. We talked, we did a whole segment uh, in our second hour of the program where you can actually share your feelings. You can, you can open up, cry if you need to, give your inner feelings to the people around you. And that's a big deal. Ever since then, Terry is all over the place. Hugging, loving, sharing. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We also like to end the show sharing a hero story to uh, to let everybody in on the joy of uh, being a hero. By the way, this uh, today's hero is the Cajun Navy. A makeshift volunteer group of Louisiana boaters has banded together to rescue Texans from Hurricane Harvey. On Sunday, a brigade of pickup trucks and small fishing vessels traveled more than four hours to the Houston area, hoping to help people who are trapped or stranded. Traversing rising floodwaters is nothing new for the group, which formed in 2005 in the aftermath of the Hurricane Katrina and subsequently rescued more than 10,000 people, the New Yorker reported. Uh, Originally, it was a uh, just 30 people with 23 vessels, but now the group has thousands of members and is a Facebook group. You can find it at Cajun Navy 2016, which has proved crucial to coordinating volunteer efforts. Volunteers noted how many times the Texans have stepped up uh, to help Louisianans, and guess what? Guess now it's time to return the favor. It's a reciprocal gift of love back to them for what they did for us last year. So there you go. The, the Cajun Navy are the heroes on the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks again, folks, to uh, to everybody that's reaching out to help, to lift, to take care, to donate for uh, what's going on in the Houston area. Really, we're in this all together. Let's remember it. We are all one disaster away from from needing everybody to, uh, to help one another. That's the show. We will be back again tomorrow uh, to take you uh, to a different place in life. BYU Sports Nation, it's up next. <laughs>